This is Audible. Audible.com presents the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. We invite you to visit Audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including The New York Times, This American Life, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Yorker. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning, Judge Roberts. Good morning, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we will now proceed to uh, the uh, third round of questioning, which will be abbreviated. There are uh, six senators uh, on the other side of the aisle who have requested additional time. Uh, there will not be a third round for any of the uh, senators on uh, the other side of the aisle. We will go into a closed session a little before 11, and uh, we will turn to the uh, outside witnesses, hopefully at 11.30, and uh, uh, we project uh, a conclusion uh, late this afternoon, uh, but that will depend upon uh, the sequence of events. Uh, I now yield to uh, my distinguished colleague, Senator Leahy, for 20 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Judge, you're really going to miss this, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> You're going to miss doing this every day. I mean, it's um, you're not even going to answer that one, are you? Well, it's uh, <laughs> it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, Senator. Yeah. <laughs> um, when we left off the other day, you and I were discussing the Supreme Court's decision in the uh, Christine Franklin, the Title IX case. This, for those who may have forgotten, is a case of very, very serious sexual abuse of a young girl by her teacher. I mean, it makes your skin crawl just to hear the facts of it. Now, Justice White's opinion for the Supreme Court rejected your arguments, your technical legal arguments, that she, uh, you would argue she should not be allowed to sue for damages. He wrote, quote, from the earliest years of the Republic, the court has recognized the power of the judiciary to award appropriate remedies to redress injuries actionable in federal court. He went on to note that to disallow damages remedy in this case would be to abdicate our historic judicial authority to award appropriate relief in cases brought in our court system. And then most tellingly, Justice White wrote that your argument that Christine Franklin's remedy should be limited to back pay and injunction, a position you had reiterated a couple of days ago, he said that conflicts with sound logic. He went on to say it's clearly inadequate. And he wrote that back pay does nothing for, and the prospective relief accords there are no remedies at all. Now, the reason I raised this case, not that it's one of those rare ones where you were on the losing side, but it's a, I raised it because I felt it was a case about what our courts should do, including doing justice and remedying rights and protecting Americans. So my question to you is this. Do you now recognize the, that the Supreme Court's view in the case that set forth in Justice White's opinion was the right one, and the positions of the United States in your brief were the wrong ones? Well, uh, as a, a judge looking at it, obviously when you lose a case, as you point out, nine to nothing, uh, uh, it's a pretty clear signal that uh, the legal position you were advocating uh, was the wrong one. Uh, the position the administration took in that case uh, was 
the same position that the Court of Appeals had taken. In other words, what the Supreme Court did was reverse well, the lower I, court. I, well, I, so I'm just explaining why uh, the position we took uh, prior to the decision may have looked different than it did no, after I, And I understand, and I thought I sort of laid that out earlier, but my question is, do you now accept that Justice White's position was right, the well, government's position was wrong? I, I, I certainly accept the decision of the court, the, the nine-nothing decision, as you, as you say, as, as a binding precedent of the court, and again, have no uh, cause or agenda to revisit it or any quarrel with it. The uh, issue, of course, was the one of what remedies are available for an implied cause of action. The reason, I think, that the lower courts came out the other way and the Supreme Court came out one way is that you're dealing with an implied cause of action. In other words, it hasn't been spelled out. And, uh, but I think, I think the Supreme Court was looking, acting as they felt within the law, for an area that would actually bring justice. That's, that was basically my point. Uh, it, it may have been implied, but they looked, uh, they looked within the case, they looked within the law and they found an area to bring justice. And I realize hard cases make sometimes make not the best law, but I think this case is a hard case, but it made good law. Would you agree? I have, I have no quarrel with the court's decision, Senator. The, um, you have been involved a great deal in the development of the Supreme Court authority limiting the ability of individual Americans to ensure they actually receive the rights and protections that Congress has mandated under spending clauses. In the Reagan administration, you advocated legislative responses to Maine versus Thibodeau. That's how the Supreme Court tells me it's pronounced. It's not how those of us who live uh, with those of French-Canadian descent might say it, but um, uh, you strongly criticize, that was the case to recognize broad access to courts so to vindicate your rights under federal law. You cr criticized the damage supposedly caused by that case in 1982 memo. And then you wrote briefs and argued before the Supreme Court in the 80s and 90s. We talked about some of these, South Dakota versus Dole, Wilder versus Virginia Hospital, uh, Sutter versus Artisan, uh, Gonzaga <coughs> University versus Doe. And you called for the narrowing of Congress spending powers and limiting the right of individuals to sue to compel the protections Congress required under federal law. I worry about this if an individual loses their right to sue uh, if, if the state or the administration, whatever the administration might be, doesn't protect their rights. If the only remedy for a state, for example, if the only remedy for a state's refusal to live up to its obligations under a spending power enactment like Medicaid or another such program, is action by the federal court, a federal government, and the federal government doesn't act. Um, where does that leave the rule of law? Where does that leave America's sense of justice if an individual can't then step in and seek action? Well, uh, two points, Senator. The, the issue in the spending clause cases that you referred to, uh, Wilder, uh, the one uh, later one, uh, the Souter case, 
um, and uh, the Gonzaga case that I argued when it was in private practice. The issue is one of congressional intent. The question is, did Congress intend there to be a private right of action? Uh, that's what the courts are trying to figure out. Um, and if Congress did intend there to be private right of action, if Congress intended this to be actionable, whether through 1983 or under the Section 1983 or under the law itself, then there would be a private right of action. In some cases, Congress doesn't intend that, uh, and in those cases, there wouldn't be. I would but, say that. No, go ahead. I was just going to make the point. That in those cases, of course, I was advocating the position for a client. I did have the occasion as a judge to address a spending clause case. It was a case called Barber versus uh, Washington Metropolitan Area. But, but, but that one, the statute is pretty darn clear. Well, it was a two-to-one decision, a uh, divided decision on a court that doesn't often issue two-to-one decisions. Uh, there was a lengthy dissent saying that uh, Congress did not have the authority to require uh, the statute. Judge, Judge Sentel dissented? Judge Sentel dissented. Yeah, I read that. I, <clears throat> I don't want to go into that. He's, he's not here before us. But um, what, I, what I worry about, though, is a trend of these tends to make, say that Congress intended uh, these programs, more like Medicaid, commitments there to be a kind of an exclusive bargain between the federal government and the state government. And that raises a question in my mind. I mean, does the, do the courts really think we've made empty promises? I, uh, I thought of this the other night. Because I remember what you said about the um, <clears throat> empty promises of the Soviet Constitution, but wouldn't we? Wouldn't it be an indication we were making the same kind of empty promises? If individuals can't can't sue uh, if they're left as innocent bystanders who are harmed because, but they have no remedy uh, if the state is negligent in acting, or if the federal government doesn't protect it. I mean, why shouldn't they be able to uh, sue to get the promises that are made in these bills so that it's not like the Soviet Constitution, uh, great promises but empty? Well, the issue is not whether they should be able to sue or not. The issue is whether Congress intended them to be able to sue or not. The issue doesn't even come up if Congress would simply spell out in the legislation, we intend these individuals to have the right to sue in federal court that would prevent the issue from even coming up. All of those cases we've been talking about arose because Congress did not address the question, and therefore the courts... Yeah, but Congress assumes, Congress assumes the states and the federal government are going to do what the law spells out. We don't do it as an empty promise. We assume they're going to do it. Uh, when they don't do it, if you're, if you're um, uh, developmentally disabled Medicaid kids, foster kids, rape victims, and so on, Shouldn't they be able to have a voice? Well, if Congress wants them to sue, all Congress has to do is write one sentence saying individuals harmed by a violation of this statute may bring a right of action in federal court. There are laws where Congress says that, and that question never comes up. The issue in the various cases that we've been talking about, including in the Barber case where I ruled uh, that the individual did have the right to sue when I was a judge, the issue is what did Congress intend? And all too often that issue is not even addressed. I don't know whether it's because of inadvertence or it's because of an inability of Congress to agree and they both sort of 
both sides sort of say, well, let's let the courts maybe, figure it out. And maybe as an assumption, those of us who take an oath of office here to uphold the laws, that the state government, those officials who take similar oaths of office, or the administrators in the national government take similar oaths of office, are actually going to do what they've sworn to do. Well, but let, let me, can I move on? Because it also goes to, and I understand your point on this, and um, we could probably debate this all, all morning long, but I hope you understand my, my concern, and which is the concern of a lot of American people in this area. Let's go to another precedent that I know moved me a great deal, uh, Gideon versus Wainwright. And as a young law student, I had an opportunity, my wife and I had an opportunity to have lunch with uh, Hugo Black shortly after that, one of the most memorable times I had. Uh, he recognized, as a former senator, he recognized the Sixth Amendment's guarantee to counsel in a criminal case was a fundamental right to a fair trial. He called it an obvious truth that our adversary system of criminal justice, any person held in court who's too poor to hire a lawyer, cannot be assured a fair trial unless counsel is provided for him. Wonderful book, <coughs> Gideon's Trumpet, that sure. Anthony Lewis wrote. Uh, doesn't Gideon stand for the principle that be meaningful? Such a fundamental right as the right to counsel requires assurances that can be exercised. Yes, I think so. Um, I've often said that a lot of these difficulties, particularly in the areas of the uh, legal errors being raised and collateral review, a lot of those difficult questions could be avoided if people had competent counsel from the very beginning. Well, doesn't the same principle embodying Gideon that the Constitution guarantees a, a, a person's ability to exercise fundamental constitutional rights, doesn't that apply to other constitutional rights? I mean, to be meaningful, if we have these rights, they've also got to be real in, uh, in, in, in people's lives. Well, I think the, the basic uh, uh, instinct and genius behind the Gideon decision was that without counsel to protect uh, people's rights, they were going to forfeit them, they were going to waive them due to ignorance uh, or inability to appreciate the proceedings, uh, uh, and that's why you need counsel at that stage. It's not simply because you have a right to counsel in the abstract. It was the recognition that having counsel is a way to ensure the protection of your other rights that you may not even be aware of. That's, that could be with a lot of our rights. I mean, they've got to be meaningful. You can't just say you have them. Uh, I, and I, I'm really struck by your discussion of the Soviet Constitution. I totally agree with you on that, but we have 280 million Americans of all different economic and educational backgrounds, everything else. We have wonderful rights. Our Bill of Rights is, I, I think, one of the most amazing things ever written by uh, democratic people. But the rights are only there if they're meaningful in people's lives, that they can be enforced. And ultimately, uh, that may come right down to the courts. Well, I think, and, it, I mean, Hugo Black's opinion is a pretty strong opinion. Uh, you, you suggest I may have uh, overread your memo following Grenada. You said it's really talking about veterans' rights, but actually your memo 
And what struck me, it doesn't say veterans' rights, it says war powers on it. Um, now, the Constitution vests the power of declaring war in Congress, not the President. How, and I don't, I still have a hard time squaring that with your inherent authority argument you advanced in that Grenada memo. Maybe I could ask it this way. Do you continue to believe that the President has inherent authority to invade a sovereign nation absent attack by a foreign power? Uh, Senator, that is a very abstract hypothetical. Uh, there are situations that arise when an executive may determine that that type of action is necessary. That may be challenged. Um, I don't think uh, abstract questions like that should be answered. Um, uh, there have been situations in our past where that authority uh, has been claimed, both abstractly and concretely. Certainly, Congress has the power to declare war. But as you know, of course, there have been several incidents in our history, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, others where uh, there has been authorization for the use of force, but not a declaration of war. Um, you know the history when Madison's original proposal gave Congress the authority to make war, and he thought that should be changed so that the executive would have the authority to respond to an invasion, and I appreciate that part of your question. Uh, and, but you also have George Washington, you're going to quote people back that time, George Washington spoke of uh, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after Congress shall have deliberated the subject and authorized such a measure. So I'll go to the flip side. Well, can Congress stop a war? Well, that's, a, that's of course, a difficult question. Now, Congress has always exercised the power of the purse with respect to activities of that sort and regulated the funding for that type of activity, and that's, of course, always been the core of Congress's authority. Uh, but the question to actually terminate hostilities that the executive has determined to initiate, either with or, or uh, with the authorization of Congress or in situation of congressional silence or acquiescence to go back to the uh, Youngstown decision, uh, the issue of what Congress's authorities are to terminate, short of exercising its power with respect to the purse, um, those are unsettled and I think have to be addressed in the context of, of a particular case. And the memo to which you refer, again, I was a lawyer for the executive and uh, any cautious lawyer for the executive, uh, without regard to the administration, would be on the alert for any type of suggestion that there are limits on that power. Just well, here, here, to show you how cautious you were, you wrote, uh, there's no clear line separating what the president may do on his own. Now, it requires a formal declaration of war, uh, but you conclude the exercise of presidential power in connection with the Grenada incident fell comfortably on the legitimate side of the line. Uh, what's the situation fall on the illegitimate side of the line? where a declaration of war would be needed. Well, it, you know, you take the history anyway. If you have a situation like the Korean War taking place without a declaration of war, uh, the war in Vietnam taking place without a declaration of war, um, I think it's difficult to articulate in the abstract where, uh, where the line would be, other than the fact that throughout our history, uh, there have been those significant types of engagements that I suspect all of the people involved in them thought were a war um, uh, uh, that did not uh, have a congressional declaration of war.
so again, uh, where the line is drawn or how it would be drawn in a particular case, or even what the role of the courts would be. As you know, in these areas, there's often an initial dispute. Is this a justiciable question that the courts should entertain in the case of litigation and a conflict between the executive and the legislative concerning something like whether a declaration of war was required? That would be a question the court would have to address before reaching the merits. Let me um, switch gears again. Uh, Senator Grassley, who's not here right now, Senator Specter and I have worked for several years to shed some light on the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Court. A lot of Americans are affected by the decisions. Most Americans don't know how it, how it works, uh, don't know whether civil liberties are being curtailed or violated. We added some sunshine provision. The Attorney General now submits a biannual report to four congressional committees, details how many people are targeted for electronic surveillance and so on. It still is inadequate in the fact it doesn't get public reporting. <laughs> if you are confirmed as Chief Justice, you're the overseer of the FISA court. Uh, most people don't even look at that role of the Chief Justice. I think it's probably one of the most important ones if you're going to talk about our liberties and how they're protected. Would you be willing to work with members of Congress to add more transparency, or do you believe there's enough transparency in the work of the FISA court now? Uh, Senator, you said you think this is something most Americans aren't aware of. I, I suggest probably most judges aren't uh, well, that's aware of it. So. It, is a, it, is a, it is a specialized court. I will tell you when I became aware of it, it's, it's, it's a surprising institution. It's an unusual setup. Um, uh, you it's certainly different think, than what we think in our system of open courts. That was exactly, uh, exactly my reaction. Um, uh, on the other hand, their Congress in setting up the court obviously concluded there were reasons uh, to do it that way. Uh, uh, I was asked a question about appointing the judges to it, and my response was that given the unusual nature of it, a very unusual nature, you can, uh, given the usual traditions of judicial <coughs> processes, that the people appointed to it have to be uh, the people of the highest quality, undoubted commitment to the, all the basic principles, both of the need for the, the court and the need to protect civil liberties. Uh, that, I think, is very important. Beyond that, I would just tell you, I, I don't know enough about uh, uh, the operations of the court at this point and, and how it functions to be able to make any representations about what I would do other than that I certainly appreciate that it's an unusual establishment and in many respects doesn't have the sorts of protections that the normal judicial process has and that I would be sensitive to those concerns. I, and I'd hope, and I realize my time is up and I apologize, but I'd hope that uh, if you are confirmed that you might be willing, and I think Senators Grass, Inspector, and myself could put together some suggestions, at least keep an open mind on it. Certainly, Senator. Because it, in an electronic age, in a digital age, when more and more information is being pulled in on Americans that we sometimes don't even know about, it, it is frightening. We want security. We want to be like, as Benjamin Franklin said, if people would give up their uh, liberties for security deserve neither. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you, Senator Leahy. Senator Kennedy for 20 minutes. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Good morning, Senator Roberts. Roberts. In um, response to a question that was asked by 
uh, Senator Biden uh, the other day, you appropriately pointed out that there were different responsibilities at the local level, state level, and national level in dealing with uh, the challenges our country face in domestic policy. I want to talk about what you understand are the powers that we have at the national level. And I want to start off uh, with the issue on, on racial discrimination, discrimination, <coughs> discrimination on the basis of race in our society. We've talked about this in different ways over the past few days, and our founding fathers did not get it right in the Constitution. We've had the Civil War, the struggles of Dr. King. Do you believe that we have the authority and the power to pass legislation to free ourselves from the stains of racial discrimination? Yes. Now let me ask you about gender discrimination. Uh, we find out over the history of this country, as you're very familiar, uh, how women have been discriminated against in all forms and all shapes. And now I want to ask you whether you believe that we have the power and the authority to pass legislation to free our nation from discrimination against women in our society. Yes, Senator, I do. I'm familiar with the various uh, legislative uh, enactments in the area that protect uh, uh, right to work and so forth, free from discrimination. And, and uh, Now let me ask you uh, about those that uh, are faced with uh, disabilities. Do you think the 50 million Americans that are faced with uh, disabilities in one form or another, challenges, I like to say, uh, do you think that we have the authority and the power to free this country, free our nation from the forms of discrimination against those who have uh, disability? I, I do, Senator. There, now, there are issues that come up, as you know, in several of the cases between uh, before the Supreme Court on the particular applications of that. Uh, cases concerning the question of you have the authority under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to abrogate state sovereign immunity if the claim of disability discrimination concerns a state as a defendant. And as you know, in the Garrett case, there was conclusion that the authority was not there. Later in the Lane case, under Title two of the of the Americans with Disabilities Act the conclusion was that that a sufficient record had been established that there was the authority so while as a general matter there is the authority in a particular case it may come up against other provisions in the Constitution or in that case the recognition of state sovereign immunity and that presents an issue that the courts uh, have to address you mentioned uh, the Lane case that was decided five to four five to four we're going to hear uh, later today from Beverly Jones, who is a plaintiff in that case. I've listened to her, met with her before. Uh, an extraordinary woman, mother of two, uh, trying to provide for her family, court reporter. And it was either an issue or question whether she was going to crawl up the flight of stairs to have access to the courtroom uh, and have someone bring up her wheelchair, or whether she was effectively going to be denied that opportunity to have access to a court courtroom in Tennessee. <clears throat> Four justices indicated in their dissent that uh, this kind of an issue or question ought to be resolved by states, effectively. Fifty states ought to be making that judgment. Uh, I strongly believe that uh, this country, in its march towards progress in dealing with the disability, with 
Americans with Disability Act, the Rehabilitation Act, the work uh, that was done with IDEA over a long period of time, uh, that we have come to the point where we as a country want to uh, invite all of those with forms of disability to be a part of the mainstream. But that was a 5-4 decision. Uh, and I appreciate the fact that I gather from your, at least Don, Sarah, I guess we, uh, in the Lane versus Tennessee, that uh, you're at least sympathetic to the uh, judgment that uh, Justice O'Connor made in indicating that accommodation for those with disability in that case was appropriate. Well, it's it's certainly the precedent of the court in that area, and I have no quarrel with it. Um, uh, the issue, of course, is whether or not Congress has the authority under Section 5 of the 14th right. Amendment to abrogate the state's sovereign immunity. It's not a, a policy judgment by the court about leaving things to the states or the federal government, but a legal determination of whether the state's sovereign immunity has been abrogated. And the court determined in that case that Congress did have that authority and that it could authorize the suit against the uh, state institution. Well, <coughs> we're going to come back to sort of the uh, kind of... <coughs> legalist uh, uh, determinations that make a, an extraordinary difference in terms of people's lives. We are welcome uh, guidance and invitation about which uh, particular provisions of the, uh, of the Constitution that we ought to <coughs> utilize in order to strike down these forms of discrimination. Let me ask you a broader question. Do you think <coughs> having a, a diverse society where everyone has an equal chance to participate is an American value and is fundamental to the strength of our society. I do. I agree with that statement, Senator. Yes. I want to, uh, I do too, and I want to just uh, review very quickly what I consider to be a sort of a pattern uh, in different judgments that you've made over a period of 20 years. We haven't got a lot of time, and I'm not going to bother going through the, uh, the memorandums. But uh, unless you would like to, but for someone who was black or brown, a woman, a disabled, and looked at a pattern over 20 years, where you were actively involved in the Reagan administration against affirmative action, I'm leaving out the whole issue of quotas. All of us are post quotas. We're talking about affirmative action, and you were expressed strong reservations about uh, the um, affirmative action. Then in 19. Uh, 91 in the FCC case, uh, you as the advocate for the U.S., the acting solicitor general, refused to take the position of the FCC, your own client. And the FCC filed briefs in favor of its own affirmative action program, and your office opposed the FCC. Uh, this is, uh, as I understand, extremely unusual. Part of the difficulty that we have, Judge Roberts, is we don't have your records on affirmative action. They were in the Reagan library, and at some time they became misplaced. And we don't have those records to be able to give a complete uh, review of these, these, these documents, although what I'm stating here is, is factual. And we don't have uh, the information that we requested from the Solicitor General's office, who, as you appropriately mentioned yesterday, was America's lawyers. In this particular case, in the Solicitor case, where the FCC, with its affirmative action program, 
that recognized that with all of the broadcasting and the television station, there were no mi minority-owned stations, and they had a very modest program. They petitioned you, who regularly were going to intervene in behalf of the FCC, and then you made a judgment that you would not, uh, that you would enter a, a brief in opposition to it. The Supreme Court came out in favor of the FCC. I know that the standard altered and changed subsequently uh, on that case. And then in, 19, in 2001, uh, you took a private case uh, to basically see that the Department of Transportation's affirmative action program uh, that uh, applied in this case to the highways, the, uh, which has been overwhelmingly supported by the Congress year in and year out, uh, would be effectively uh, undermined. The, the point I'm asking here is, uh, given the, the, these series of actions over a period of time, uh, what do you think in your record uh, would give some sense of hope uh, to, to women, uh, to minorities, blacks and browns, to those that are disabled, that are not looking for a handout, but just looking for a chance in this diverse society to be able to have an equal opportunity. Well, uh, Senator, I think there's a great deal in my background that you could look to in that respect. Uh, for example, you could look to the cases in which I argued in favor of affirmative action. Um, I've argued on both sides of that issue. Uh, in the Rice versus Cayetano case, for example, before the Supreme Court, I argued in favor of uh, affirmative action for Native Hawaiians. Um, I lost that case, but I was arguing on the side of affirmative action. Uh, there are other episodes in my background that people could look to. For example, I regularly participate in, uh, when I was at my law firm, a, a program sponsored by the firm, a legal reasoning program for minority and disadvantaged students going on to law school. Uh, to help them prepare for the rigors of law school. So not simply that they would be chosen and selected and admitted into law school, but be in a better position to be able to succeed once they, uh, once they got there. Uh, with respect to the uh, FCC case that you mentioned in the Metro Broadcasting uh, case, I think a fuller uh, understanding of the situation there is necessary. Uh, the United States had already taken a position uh, before the FCC, opposed to the FCC program. Uh, and that put the Solicitor General's office in the position uh, where they had the United position of the United States, which was opposed to it, and the FCC position, which uh, uh, had prevailed before the District of Columbia Court of Appeals. Um, I authorized uh, the FCC to defend its position in court. Um, that was a discretionary decision. I didn't have to do that, but I thought the Supreme Court, in a situation where the FCC, part of the United States, and the formal position of the United States before I had ever gotten involved in the case, were at loggerheads, that the court should have both views and decide the case. They did decide it in favor of the FCC five to four, and as you noted in the, in the other case that I participated in, later the Supreme Court overturned that decision. The long and short of it is that if you look at my record on the question of affirmative action, yes, I was in an administration that was opposed to quotas. Uh, opposition to quotas is not the same thing as opposition to affirmative action. That was something that President Reagan emphasized repeatedly. 
Um, I argued against quotas in the, uh, the FCC case. I argued in favor of affirmative action in the uh, Hawaiian case. In terms of my own personal involvement, I've been active in programs that promote the interests of minorities and disadvantaged to participate fully in our society. Well, as you know, in the Hawaiian case, that was not an affirmative action case. You gave that response to Senator Durbin in the written uh, answers uh, to the when when you were promoted to the circuit court, and in uh, the case itself, it indicates that it was not an affirmative action. But if all right, well, let, let me go. Uh, we'll we'll agree sure. to differentiate. I've just got a, a short time left. Stand. Um, on the uh, EEOC, there, uh, there's the quote that uh, you have. This is the Equal Opportunities Commission that was set up in 1964. It's part of the 1964 Act. And it was basically set up at the strong suggestion and recommendation of Everett Dirksen, who played a key role, in order to try and deal with the uh, discrimination on women, on race, on, on ethnicity, uh, national origin. Uh, and so they set up a commission in, in order to be able to take the various complaints. They didn't think they'd have many uh, complaints. They had, first year it had 9,000 complaints. And it's been doing extraordinary work uh, ever since. Uh, you mentioned in your uh, memoranda that um, we should uh, Nora, you're familiar, I think, with these words. They've been written up in the journals, and you can probably recognize them. We should ignore the assertion that the EEOC is un-American, the truth of the matter uh, notwithstanding. Uh, is there anything, is there some reason that uh, you uh, would make a comment like that? Well, Senator, you do have to read uh, the memo, I think, in, in its it. entirety to put it in context. That was not my language. That was the language, uh, the un-American reference was the language that was employed by an individual who had a case before the EEOC. He actually won his case before the EEOC, but he didn't like the difficulty and the time involved. He wrote to the president, and he said two things. One, that his treatment at the hands of the EEOC was un-American, and two, that the president had a, a promised uh, in the campaign to abolish the EEOC, and he wanted to hold the president to that promise. It was my responsibility to figure out how to respond to this complaint that had been received. And how we responded was by protecting the EEOC from interference by the president in any political way. By protecting the EEOC from this sort of complaint. We did not go to the president and say, you've got to do something about the EEOC. We did objection at all. And the point of the letter, when you read the whole memorandum, you see two points. The first is that I was unable to determine in the short time I had to respond whether or not the president had made such a pledge to abolish the EEOC. I simply didn't know. And I said that in the, in the uh, paragraph, if you read it. And that's what the truth of the matter notwithstanding is referring to, the question of whether or not the president had promised to abolish the EEOC. I say right in the memo that we cannot determine that. And whether his treatment was un-American or not is beside the point. We don't interfere with the activities of the EEOC. That was the conclusion, and that's what we did in that case. Well, Mr. Chairman, I'd ask that the memo be included in there. I think the fact that the, you included. say that the assertion of the EEOC is un-American, the truth of the matter notwithstanding was your you do, comment. You do need to read the prior right, I'll, I'll, I'll include that, sentence. but I, I want to come, because I'm in the final few minutes, and I will. I've, I've read it 
a number of times, and I'll include it in the record, and we'll let the record stand. Senator Fennelly's line of questioning is finished, and he's used his time. You'll have the memo, and you can respond. Thank you. Um, at the outset of my questions, uh, I talked about uh, Earl Warren, and you were enormously complimentary about Earl Warren, about him understanding not only the law, but also understanding the importance of a chief justice, uh, bringing other justices together in a very important way in terms of dealing with a societal issue and a question, and I think we're a fairer country and a fairer land because of this. This was really the bringing together of the mind and the heart. Oliver Wendell Holmes said the danger, it's dangerous to think about legal issues can be worked out like mathematics. And another uh, nominee who was here not too long ago had, had this to say about the head and the heart. Uh, what you worry about is someone trying to decide an individual case without thinking out the effect of that decision on a lot of cases. That is why I always think law requires both a heart and a head. If you do not have a heart, it becomes a sterile set of rules, removed from human problems, and it will not help. If you do not have a head, there is the risk that in trying to decide a particular person's problem in a case, that may look fine for that person, but you cause trouble for a lot of other people, making their lives yet worse. Uh, in the remaining moment, as uh, recalling Justice Warren, just thinking through um, what other nominees have said about the importance of a heart and a legal mind, and you as a Chief Justice uh, together, um, in telling the American people how you were inspired by Chief Justice Warren at a very important and critical time in our nation's history. Uh, what could you tell them now that could give them the assurance that you might be a similar kind of Chief Justice uh, should you be approved by the Senate? Well, uh, Senator, my point with respect to Chief Justice Warren was that he appreciated the uh, impact that the decision in Brown would have. And he appreciated that the impact would be far more uh, beneficial and favorable and far more effectively implemented if it was the uh, unanimous court, the court speaking with one voice, than a splintered court. The issue was significant enough that he spent the extra time uh, in the re-argument of the case to devote his energies to convincing the other justices, and obviously there's no arm twisting or anything of that. It's the type of collegial discussion that judges and justices have to engage in of the importance of what the court was doing and an appreciation of its impact on real people and real lives. I recognize as a judge and I recognized as a lawyer that these cases have impact on real people and real lives. I always insisted when I was a lawyer about getting out into the field and seeing it. If I was arguing a case uh, involving native villages in Alaska, I went to the villages. If I was arguing a case about an assembly line, I went to the assembly line. Uh, you had to see where the case was going to have its impact and what its impression was going to be on people. Now, none of those cases were as important as Brown versus Board of Education. But the basic principle is the same. I think judges do have to appreciate that they're dealing with real people with real cases. We obviously deal with documents and texts the Constitution, the statutes, the legislative history, 
and that's where the legal decisions are made. But judges never lose sight, or should never lose sight, of the fact that their decisions affect real people with real lives, and I appreciate that. My time is up, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, so, Senator. Thank you, Senator Kennedy. Uh, as I said, when Senator Kennedy was questioning you about the EOC, I did not want to uh, take his time to uh, have him present the memo to you, limited time that he had. But uh, and it's been made a part of the record. Senator Kennedy, if you would make the memo available now to Senator Kennedy, if yes, I could have your attention. Me. If you'd make the memo available to uh, Judge Roberts now so that he can comment it now without uh, having taken your time to do that. Um, Mr. Chairman, uh, we, as you know, this has been redacted, and as I think in fairness to him and fairness to the committee, if we can get out the other redactions, it would be a more accurate kind of a way, uh, complete record. Well, if it's possible for uh, Judge Roberts to uh, deal with the redactions, uh, I, I, think the, I, I think the redactions simply identify the individual. It's, uh, the individual is making the complaint who had his case. The only thing I would emphasize is that the language that was quoted was part of a sentence, and the, uh, the, the question of what the truth of the matter is referring to goes to the, the first part of the sentence that was not read, which is the assertion, the assertion that the president promised to abolish the EEOC. That was the matter that I could not determine in the time available, whether that was correct or, or not, so I said the truth of that matter notwithstanding. And I'd also emphasize that any reference to the phrase un-American is always in quotes to make it clear that that's what the uh, writer of the letter said, and certainly not what I said, and certainly not my view then or now. Senator Kennedy, do you want to follow up on that? Well, I, I think we've been over the, it's after all is said and done about finding out what uh, President Reagan wanted to abolish or not abolish. That really wasn't the, uh, the issue or the question. And the question isn't about whether the, uh, the, the use of the un-American is uh, obviously unacceptable. I mean, and they're dismissing that. But the, uh, Judge Roberts said uh, the assertion the EEOC is un-American, uh, qu quote, and he's quite right saying that they were dismissing that word, but then he adds the truth of the matter notwithstanding. I think it's not unreasonable to assume that he somehow was disparaging the EOC. That's all. I'm glad to let the record stand, uh, Mr. Chairman. Any counter-reply? Well, I'm, I'm glad to let the record stand, just as long as the, the whole memorandum and it's the entire sentence that's being discussed. Well, we finally come to one point of agreement. Senator Feinstein for 15 minutes. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I want to just say one thing. I don't really know what I'm going to do with respect to voting for you or voting against you. I had one impression of you when we had our hour in private. And to a great extent, I think I came out of that meeting with a different sense of you. And of course, the impression that I have today is of this very cautious, very precise man. young obviously with staying power. I mean, you've gone through this in a remarkable way. I'm convinced you will be there, God willing, for 40 years. And that even concerns me more because it means that my vote means more. And I come from a different side than the Republicans do with different concerns, I think, different life experiences. Um, 
Yesterday, last night, we gave you the Plyler memo. Senator Durbin asked a number of questions. I asked a few. And you read that memo, I hope, last night. I did, Senator, yes. Do you believe you were wrong? Well, Senator, uh, on the underlying Could you say question, you were wrong if you believed you were wrong? Well, I can say that the, the, uh, the reason I'm hesitating, as, and this is what was brought out in the Congressional Research Service memo that you attached to it, um, these issues come up all the time in related questions. I'm, I have no quarrel with the court's decision. As you know, uh, it was a five to four decision on the legal question, not the question. I certainly believe every child should be educated. Regardless of immigration status. As, as, a, as a, my own view is that if you have a child, it should be, he or she should be educated. You worry about status later. Just say That's yes, not, regardless of immigration status. As, as a personal view, yes. It's a separate issue as a legal question, as you know. And the court in Plyler split five to four. Among the dissenters, the people who agreed with the position that the administration or the position uh, in, discussed in the memorandum were Justices White and Justice O'Connor. And I would not take their subscribing to the position of the dissent in Plyler versus Doe as suggesting that they in any way uh, uh, have uh, less than uh, fully developed and sensitive concerns about children and education. Justices White and O'Connor uh, uh, don't, and they're not subject to criticism on that score simply because their understanding of the law was uh, came out in the dissent in Plyler against Doe. So I would just try to make sure that people appreciate that saying that this is what you think the legal determination was, because the issue there was the Texas legislature, the representative of the, of the people of Texas, had reached a certain determination about funding and what they, how, how they wanted to fund particular activities, um, and that was what the litigation was about. It's not a question about whether you believe in educating children or not. I don't think Justice O'Connor didn't believe that children should be educated, yet she was in the dissent in that case. I understand. Let me just give you two human dynamics. One of the people in public life that I most respect is a mayor in my state of a small immigrant community called Orange Cove. His name is Victor Lopez. I've known him for about 10 years. I have watched him, and I'm a former mayor, try to build a town from nothing. I was there. There weren't sidewalks. There weren't schools. He has managed to do it. He has given his people a sense of pride. They're all agricultural workers, a sense of pride and dignity. To me, that's the American dream. It's the federal job to keep illegal immigrants out. But once they're here, it's our job to see that they have certain basic rights, I think, among them education. Another interesting twist to this is in 1986, an amnesty was passed. Plyler was in 82. If the decision had gone the other way, you could have seen the enormous problem that would have happened in 86, when all these children, then legal, absolutely, still would have been denied school. So I, I think that's, that's an interesting twist. Now, Duke Law School professor Catherine Fisk examined nine cases heard by you while you were on the Court of Appeals. Uh, her review concluded that you ruled in favor of a corporation each time. Consequently, she made this prediction, quote, 
you're going to be a fairly reliable vote against workers' rights across the board, end quote. Would you respond to that, please? Uh, I, I think the conclusion is wrong. Um, I would suggest that any examination of nine cases is uh, too small of a statistical sample to draw any conclusions of that sort. I know that I've ruled against corporations on a regular basis uh, on the D.C. Circuit. I think I just saw a study, a more comprehensive one, uh, that suggested I tended to rule against corporations more than the average judge. I, I don't want to, I, I, I just skimmed the, the article, uh, but it's, it's quite often the case, for example, part of a lot of the business in the D.C. Circuit involves regulatory issues, agencies regulating corporations. Are you ruling in favor of the corporation or the agency? And I know uh, I regularly rule in favor of the agency. Sometimes I rule against the agency. Um, I like to think it depends upon the particular law and the particular facts, but I haven't seen that study. But again, I, I, nine cases, uh, yeah, I'm sure you could find nine cases going the other way as well. Thank you. I, I want to move on. In, a number of people on our side are very concerned about executive power. And what we perceive, either rightly or wrongly, to be a greatly expanded executive authority in recent years, causing enormous concern in a number of different ways. Um, let me go back into your past. Um, in trying to get Senate documents, um, one of the documents withheld was a draft memo titled uh, Establishment of NHAQ, the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office. This office was used by President Reagan to give aid to the Nicaraguan Contras following the passage of the Boland Amendment, and that was a prohibition on providing funding to the Contras. What involvement did you have with the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office? So I don't, I'm not familiar with the memorandum. If it was withheld, it was probably withheld from me as well, and I don't recall any involvement. So, I, you know, you, what... I, I don't okay. recall any. Okay, I do enough. know that there was fair an enough. issue. An issue was raised. I have seen memoranda that I know have been released about uh, private fundraising activities, and I do know that I gave advice uh, in order to make sure that they didn't engage in lobbying activities uh, in order to be consistent with the Boland Amendment. I've seen those, but uh, beyond that, I'm not recalling anything. Do you believe that the administration's provision of funds to the Contras exceeded the executive's power in light of the Boland Amendment's prohibition on funding the Contras? You know, it's not something I've, I just sort of know what I've read in the papers about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it seemed to me that it, it did. But again, that's just based on, it's not based on a study or a legal analysis. Um, just sort of, well, I think a lot a of it. Well, it's a pretty simple question. I mean, well, when the Congress passes a law that says don't fund, and the executive finds a covert way to fund. And as you know, one of the great redeeming qualities of President Reagan was that he did an admission of wrongdoing. And I think the American people accepted that. He was able to admit a mistake, which I tend to think, you know, is it's hard to do in this arena. But in a way, it's a sign of a big person to be able to come forward and say, I was wrong. So it's on its face. What you're saying, if I understand you, um, you do believe that the provision of funds 
exceeded the executive power in this instance? Well, again, I, I haven't done a legal study, and uh, but based on what I know, which is just what every citizen knows from reading, this I, I think it all was took place after I was no longer in the government, uh, or at least came to light after that. Uh, it seemed to be inconsistent with the law. All right, um, let me ask you a general question then: If an executive exercises power in direct violation of an act of Congress, is such an act unconstitutional? Well, the answer depends, Senator, and this is when you get back to the Youngstown uh, analysis, where Justice Jackson said uh, there are three categories. You can act with Congress's support, with being unclear what Congress's position is, and he recognized a third category where you can act, the executive may act in the face of a congressional prohibition. And there are certain areas where the executive does have authority to the exclusion of Congress, um, you know, without stating a legal view, for example, one that law professors regularly talk about uh, is the pardon power. In other words, that's given expressly to the, the president of the Constitution. And restrictions, if Congress were to pass a restriction on the pardon power, uh, does the president nonetheless have the authority to act under the Constitution? That's a difficult uh, question, but it may be that the president's authority would trump Congress's authority. So I can't answer a question in the abstract without knowing exactly what the record is and what the situation is. What Justice Jackson said in Youngstown, though, is obviously true, that if the president is acting in the face of congressional opposition, his power is at its lowest ebb. As Jackson put it, it includes his powers less whatever powers Congress has. So if it's in an area in which Congress has legitimate authority to act, that would restrict the executive's authority. Which this case was. All right. Um, Senator uh, Kennedy engaged you in, a, I think, a substantive discussion on the civil rights issue. And you did let a little bit of the man come through. And I commend you for that. Thank you very much. Um, let me talk about Gonzaga for a minute. Because if I understand it, you argued that the spending clause clauses are not the supreme law of the land, but should be viewed as contracts between the federal government and the states, right? No, uh, it okay. was not a dispute about be being the supreme law of the land. There's no dispute about that, that when Congress passes the legislation under the supremacy clause, it's the supreme law of the land. The question is what remedies are available. It's a very simple uh, problem. The, you, you folks uh, give money to the states, and you say you can spend this money on educational programs but if you accept our money you have to do this this and this right and the question is well what happens if somebody comes into court and says they accepted the money congress said if you take our money you have to do this they didn't do it they violated uh, my rights under this provision what happens then now in many cases congress will say if these rights are violated you can sue in court and you can make that that state institution, in this case, uh, uh, not a state institution, a private university, the same thing, they've accepted the funds. You can make them pay damages. But in other cases, the argument is, well, the condition was imposed by the federal government, and the federal government should enforce any violations, and you don't necessarily have the right to sue for damages. That's the question. It's an issue that would never come up if Congress would say in each law, if you violate this provision, you can sue in federal court or you can't sue in federal court.
or as in this case we're going to set up an office in the Department of Education that is going to police compliance and if you violate this provision that office is going to come down on the university and make them comply make them do whatever they need to do to get back into compliance there's no dispute that the uh, university in this case is bound by the condition the question is does an individual who's harmed by their violation get to sue about it? And that sometimes it comes out that they can, as in the, the Wilder case. Sometimes it comes out that they, that they can't. The determination is that Congress did not intend there to be a private lawsuit to enforce that. And that was the conclusion in the Gonzaga case. Well, let me ask you, do you believe that state obligations created by Congress through the spending clause are enforceable by citizens in the courts? Well, the answer there is it depends on that law. In Gonzaga, what the court determined was that provision at issue there was not enforceable by private citizens in the courts. It was enforceable by the federal government. The federal government can cut off the funds. More likely, the federal government can enforce the provision through uh, proceedings against the university. Um, in the Wilder case, a different statute, the court determined uh, the condition in that case, the Medicare Medi or Medicaid funding case, was enforceable. A private citizen could go into court because the review of Congress's uh, intent in that case came out differently than it did in the Gonzaga case. Thank you. My, I, well, j just l let me just finish this quickly. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't really know how to ask this question, but let me try. When is it a contract, and when it is, is it the law? Because if it's a contract, that affects a whole host of laws that we pass that are very important. Medicaid, Title IX, No Child Left Behind, um, even the Internet Protection Act, all of these things. So it's, when it's, does a contract attach? It's, it's, always, it's always a contract, and sometimes if the intent of Congress is that private parties be allowed to sue, it's, it's more than a contract. But it's always at least a contract. So the intent has to be a specific intent. It, it doesn't. No, the courts don't require that. Uh, uh, they don't require that you specifically say you have the right to sue. But the court has to look at it and try to figure out, did you intend, when you put this provision in, did you intend private parties to be able to sue for damages? Or did you expect the Department of Education to enforce that and have the authority to cut off the funds or to impose other conditions because a university is violating it? And as I said, some cases come out one way and some cases come out the other way. But in each of those cases, what the court is trying to do is figure out what you, the Congress, meant in that, in that statute. I think my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator Feinstein. Senator Feingold, recognized for 20 minutes. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman, for your willingness to allow us this additional round. And uh, thank you, Judge Roberts, for all your patience uh, throughout you, the whole process. A topic we touched on in our meeting in my office in July was the issue of judges going to judicial education conferences at sometimes uh, fancy resorts, which are put on by ideologically oriented groups and paid for by private corporations sometimes that even have cases pending before the judges in attendance. And when we spoke, of course, you had been nominated for the associate justice position, and our conversation concerned your personal interest in attending such events. As I remember, your answer was that you said you'd rather spend your free time with your family, which I thought was a pretty good answer. 
But now you've been nominated for Chief Justice, and one of your duties is to head the Judicial Conference, which among other things sets the ethics policies for the federal judiciary. And this is one area where I think uh, Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist might have taken a different course. He took a number of steps to essentially leave uh, this ethical question up to the personal decision of individual judges and appointed a judge to head the Committee on Codes of Conduct who had been prominently featured in a 2020 expose of these junkets. Not surprisingly, the committee weakened the judicial ethics rules in this question of privately financed trips. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist strongly opposed congressional efforts to put a halt to these judicial junkets that I believe sometimes ref reflect poorly on the independence and impartiality of the judiciary. So I'd like to know, Judge Roberts, if confirmed, whether you will use your power as Chief Justice to set a high ethical tone for the federal judiciary by putting in place a new code of conduct that would prohibit judges from participating in privately funded quote, judicial education, unquote, that lets special interests essentially lobby uh, federal judges? Well, um, I don't think special interests should be allowed to lobby federal judges. Um, um, as stated that way, I think the answer is, is clear. I don't know enough about how these things operate. As I said, I've not been on one of them. Uh, uh, I don't know how the funding is set up. I don't know what the situation is. I, if confirmed, I'm certainly happy to examine it. I know that there is a... Um, uh, conflict of interest or ethical standard review group, I think, within the Judicial Conference. I believe they addressed that question and issued an opinion on it uh, recently. But again, my, I, I'm just sort of re recollecting a, a, something I read. I Money. would say more, more generally, though, um, and this doesn't, maybe it's off topic, in which case feel free to cut me off, but I do think it's important for judges and justices to uh, get out, uh, particularly to get out of Washington a little bit. Um, I've always enjoyed going to the law schools, uh, participating in the moot courts or, or you know, functions where you get to visit with the, the law students. Um, I, I've done that a few times, not a lot, a few times. I wouldn't call that by any stretch of the imagination a junket, uh, uh, but I do think it's important uh, for the justices to, to get out around the country and, and uh, particularly visit the, the, the law schools. I, I, that's probably not the same sort of thing you're oh, talking fair about. Fair enough, and I, I think you would agree that there's nothing wrong with judges or senators golfing. That's not, that's not the question. It may not be good for the game of golf, but it's... Uh... <laughs> In 2000, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote a letter supporting repeal of a provision of the Ethics Reform Act of 1989 uh, that bans honoraria for judges. Do you believe that the law should be changed to permit judges to take honoraria for speeches or appearances? Uh, there again, Senator, that's not an issue I've looked at. I know the, um, I know the law prohibits that. Um, um, I know that there was a case about that, and the, the Supreme Court decided that the, to some extent that prohibition was unconstitutional as applied to lower-level officials, but constitutional as applied to, uh, to, to others. Um, it, it's not a question that I've addressed. Uh, Just to return for the record for a moment, uh, the, the item that the judge referred to in terms of the judicial conference policy is act actually the policy that I was concerned about that I thought was a step backward, and I just wanted that reflected in the record. I'm although I'm also, Mr. Chairman, wanting to put an item in the record. Uh, I'm not going to ask more questions about Judge Roberts' memo recommending against the president um, stating that HIV could not be transmitted uh, through casual contact. Uh, but I do want to make sure the record is complete. I'd like to submit for the record uh, Judge Roberts' memo on that issue from September 1985, Centers for Disease Control documents from 1982 and 1985, and a number of news stories from August and September 1985 reporting 
the CDC's conclusion that HIV could not be spread through casual contact. I would note that there are several articles in this collection from the Washington Post on September 4, 1985, the date of the article that Senator Coburn submitted yesterday that I think makes this clear as well. Chairman, if those items can be entered in the record. Mr. Chairman. Yeah, without objection, so Turn again to the death penalty. When you worked in the Reagan administration, you expressed strong opposition to federal courts revealing criminal convictions in state courts via writs of habeas corpus. Uh, as you know, prisoners who believe they were wrongly or unfairly convicted in state court can seek to have the federal courts hear their claims via writ of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a fundamental part of our legal system that has long protected individual freedom. In a 1981 memo, you argued that the availability of federal habeas relief to state prisoners, quote, goes far to making a mockery of the entire criminal justice system. In that same memo, you said, quote, the question would seem uh, not to be not what tinkering is necessary in the system, but rather, why have federal habeas corpus at all, unquote. Then in 1983, as Senator Leahy brought up yesterday, you suggested that if the Supreme Court wanted to reduce its caseload, it should, quote, abdicate the role of fourth or fifth guesser in death penalty cases, unquote. Not of First Amendment cases or antitrust cases, but death penalty cases. I know that you've said that your memos in the Reagan administration reflected the views of the administration and not your own, but in this area at least, your memos clearly indicate, I think, that these were your views. With the 1981 memo, for example, there is a cover note in your handwriting directing that the memo be sent to John Rose, an assistant attorney general at the time, with a cover note that reads, quote, the attached memorandum contains some thoughts on habeas corpus reform for whatever you think they're worth. Judge Friendly and Justice Rehnquist would never have forgiven me if I'd remained mute, unquote. That sounds a lot like a memo advocating your views, not those of the department. With regard to the memo from 1983 that I mentioned, you were analyzing the Chief Justice proposal to create another intermediate appellate court to take the pressure off the Supreme Court's docket, and you said, and I quote, my own view, my own view is that it is a terrible idea. And you went on to say that the fault lies with the justices themselves who take too many cases, including death penalty cases. And you sent a personal letter to Judge Friendly in 1981 that said, quote, this is an exciting time to be at the Justice Department when so much that has been taken for granted for so long is being seriously reconsidered. To cite just one example, serious thought is being given to reform of habeas corpus. I do not know what will eventuate, as you noted. What has come to pass as the great writ is regarded by many lawmakers with no ideal of the problems as unalterable perfection, unquote. Now that discussion in a personal letter sounds like your own opinion as well. A decade later, when you were at the Solicitor General's office during the first Bush administration, you signed several briefs that sought to strictly limit federal habeas review. And in 1993, while in private practice, you testified before the House Republican Task Force on Crime in favor of further habeas restrictions. The comments in your memos from the 1980s, I'm sorry to say, don't even show the slightest concern about innocent lives possibly being lost if federal habeas were eliminated. Does the possible hostility toward the habeas process that was expressed in those memos, particularly in death penalty cases, reflect your current view on federal habeas or have your views changed or evolved? Well, as, as you know, the law has changed and evolved uh, dramatically since the early 80s. And at least with respect to my personal letter to Judge Friendly, I, I guess I thought it was a personal letter. Um, but, <laughs> um, uh, the situation has changed dramatically, as you know. Uh, what I was referring to in the early 80s was a situation where there were no limits on repetitive habeas corpus petitions. Four, five, six 
dozens of different petitions could be filed repetitively. Congress saw that as a problem. Congress acted to address the very concerns that I was raising there and pass legislation. The Supreme Court saw it as a problem. The Supreme Court acted in a number of cases, the Teague case and, and others, in limiting the uh, uh, availability of successive and repetitive habeas petitions. Actually, what happened is the Supreme Court, I think, started down that path and Congress made the decision that this is something they should look at in a more comprehensive way. So Congress passed laws that restrict when people can file repetitive and successive petitions. Those are the very concerns that I was talking about. They were concerns that had uh, motivated the first person I worked for as a lawyer, Judge Henry Friendly, to write on the subject. He wrote a famous article on habeas reform entitled, Is Innocence Irrelevant? Because he thought these successive petitions had made uh, sort of a game uh, 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 out of the whole process in which the question of innocence was totally lost in these successive petitions. And the references to the great writ, yes, of course, uh, the, the, the writ of habeas corpus has an, uh, an established heritage uh, uh, as a basis for complaining about illegal confinement. But all the stuff we're talking about there, the fourth and fifth successive petitions uh, raising new issues that should have been raised in the first petition, and as you know, that's what Congress's legislation focused on. You but, but did you, Judge, didn't you not at the time, as I read your statement, advocate the abolition of federal habeas review? No, I, I, what, what the purpose of what I was saying was to certainly reform and abolish the system as it existed then where people could file repetitive and successive petitions. And I'll tell you why. The main problem, and I think it's a particular concern in death cases, is that nobody along the way feels that they're making the responsible decision. If people get in a situation where they know, okay, if you're on a jury and you sentence someone to death, if you think, well, He's going to file habeas petitions in state court, he's, and they're going to look at it then. After that, and the person who considers the state habeas petition says, I know they're going to be successive federal habeas petitions. They'll look at the issue then. Everybody is pointing fingers in opposite directions. The way when Congress reformed this system, I think it helped to make clear that the decisions that are going to be made on the first habeas petition is, are, is going to be critical. And so hopefully it's looked at a lot more carefully than in the prior system when you knew, well, that, was, that wasn't the, uh, the end of the, of the uh, process. It wasn't even the beginning of the end. The conviction was just the end of the beginning. Well, would you agree that, that had the view that you advocated in your memos prevailed in, in the early 1980s, the abolition of the writ, and federal habeas review of state court convictions was removed entirely, had that happened, innocent people would have been executed and serious constitutional errors would have gone unaddressed? Well, that wasn't my position. No, but I'm asking... No, no, that, had, had that view prevailed, no. not necessarily your personal view, but the abolition of the writ, isn't it the case that innocent people would have been at fault? Oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in favor now and was not in favor then of uh, not allowing any federal habeas review. Uh, I'm asking you whether you wouldn't agree that as a matter of fact, yes. had the writ been eliminated, that some innocent people would have been executed. Well they certainly wouldn't have been able to assert their claim of innocence in federal habeas. Not and, and people do succeed at that stage. I certainly think it serves a valuable purpose. Um, uh, but that, again, was not... You know, the situation with respect to habeas 23 years ago was quite different than it is today. And the reason it's changed, I think, is because Congress responded to those sorts of concerns. I take those comments as very important, and I know you can't comment on this, but there are further efforts now to further limit this right 
that could come before you. And I know you can't comment on it, but I think it's of great significance that you have acknowledged uh, that some of those changes that were made in the 90s have significantly affected your view about the propriety of the habeas process. Um, after, on a different subject, after the passing of Chief Justice Rehnquist, a number of news articles discussed his legacy and noted that early in his tenure as justice he had been a dissenting voice, but the court seemed to shift in his direction over time. Recently, Professor Cass Sunstein um, recalled it over lunch with a group of Supreme Court clerks when he was an associate justice. Chief Justice Rehnquist described his own role on the court. He said the court was like a boat that had tilted way over to one side and his task was to put it upright again. Do you believe that the Chief Justice has the duty to influence the overall philosophical direction of the court through his personal leadership or through opinion writing assignments or any other means? And do you think uh, that that is appropriate for the, for, for the Chief, it is appropriate for the Chief to do that? Um, not, um, um, I don't think using opinion or writing assignments as a way to try to promote a particular view or agenda is a good idea. Um, uh, and I don't think that uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist did that. I do think if you go back and look at every year that he was the Chief Justice and just uh, pick out what you think are the 10 or 12 <laughs> biggest cases. Uh, of that year, I think you will find that those cases are distributed very evenly among the nine justices. And one reason I think relations among the justices were so collegial under Chief Justice Rehnquist's leadership. Uh, at a time when, of course, the court had very marked philosophical differences and sharp dissents in some areas, uh, but everybody got along well. It was because the chief made a priority of being fair in his opinion assignments. I think that's the more important priority. Can you imagine ever changing your vote in, or in order to be able to assign the majority opinion to yourself or, or to another justice, and, and do you think that such practice is appropriate? Uh, no, I don't, uh, in answer to both both questions. So you would not do that? I, I wouldn't do that. I think that, there's, again, sort of trying to use that assignment power in a, in a tactical way, it, it causes tension on the court um, and I think undermines the ability of the Chief Justice to the extent he has that ability and it's obviously limited uh, to act as a force to help bring about some cohesiveness and collegiality. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. On a different subject, uh, some people blame plaintiff's lawyers for various problems with the economy and the legal profession. Do you believe that lawyers who represent injured persons in product liability and medical malpractice cases are harming America? No. Having worked on the defense side for most of your non-government uh, career, can you be fair in your rulings to plaintiffs seeking redress for injury? Um, I'm going to disagree with your, your premise. Um, I've represented uh, 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 plaintiffs' interests. Uh, I think if you look, for example, at the antitrust cases I've argued, more of them have been on the plaintiff's side uh, than on the defendant's side. Um, uh, one of my uh, co-clerks when I clerked for Justice Rehnquist is a very prominent uh, uh, personal injury lawyer and I think he does a wonderful job. I know there are abuses in this area. There are abuses in, in uh, the area of defense representation as well. Um, I, I certainly don't have any biases uh, one way or the other. Thank you, Judge. Judge, you are in an important case before the Supreme Court concerning who's protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was called uh, Toyota versus Williams. Ms. Williams suffered from hand, wrist, and arm pain while working in an engine assembly line. She was diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome, and her physician placed her on a permanent work restrictions. Her pain continued 
and she did not think that her employer was addressing her physician-ordered work restrictions appropriately, so she sued under the ADA. You represented Toyota in the case before the Supreme Court, and this was a case of uh, statutory interpretation, so I assume you're quite familiar with the legislative history of that act. Do you agree with the statement of one of the justices during oral argument that the act was primarily intended to protect people who are, quote, wheelchair-bound, unquote? Um, uh, the act contains a definition of disability, and that's what the issue was about. And that definition does not uh, uh, contain that type of restriction. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to comment on issues that might come before me, but uh, the, the case was about the definition. The definition was not restricted in that way. The only point I would make, and I'm sure you appreciate this, is that a lot of times the statements during oral argument are not uh, it's certainly not expressions of either the, uh, the, the justice's view. They're often playing a devil's advocate, and I don't even remember that question. I don't know if it was directed at me or at the uh, other counsel, but it may well have been intended to elicit a response uh, to flesh out more fully what the, the definition was. More generally, do you believe that the ADA or any other civil rights statute should be interpreted narrowly or broadly when it comes to the issue of who it protects? Well, I have to say, I think it should be interpreted and consistent with Congress's intent. Um, and you look at a lot of different factors in trying to flesh that out. If you folks here in Congress had a particular, in any statute, a narrow focus, then to give that focus a broader impact, I think, would be wrong. If you had a broad focus, as of course you often do when you're dealing with statutes designed to address discrimination, giving that interpretation a narrow focus would be wrong. Um, the effort in every case is to try to give it the right focus, and that's the focus that you intended when you passed the law. Thank you, Judge, and uh, appreciate all your answers. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back the remainder of my time. Thank you, Senator. Thank you very much, Senator Feingold. Uh, Senator Sessions has uh, asked for uh, recognition briefly a, a to clarify here. one point, which he thinks uh, requires that clarification. Um, thank you. and. Um, uh, Judge Roberts, I commend you on your good humor, and even when they read a memo, suggest you said the EEOC was un-American when actually all you were doing was quoting a complaint and that, and that you defended the EEOC uh, and its uh, rights uh, and independence aggressively in that memo. But I wanted to ask you about this uh, Texas case. As I understand it, uh, Texas decided that they would not fund educations for illegal aliens that are here in the country and uh, that was challenged as being unconstitutional and went to the Supreme Court. I know you uh, have said that you as a parent and, and as a person who believes in education, you absolutely believe in uh, uh, education for all children uh, in, in some way, form, or fashion, but you don't mean to suggest or prejudge, do you, uh, the constitutionality of the uh, right of the state of Texas to uh, make that decision. Uh, uh, that would be a matter of... Uh, I think s some importance and perhaps again in the years to come. Well, no, Senator, and I did try to be very careful in separating the personal uh, uh, views with respect to the importance of education from the legal question there. And the legal question, of course, was a close one. It divided the court five to four. Um, and as I noted, among the dissenters were Justices White and O'Connor. And I don't think their legal position reflected any uh, uh, less than wholehearted view concerning the importance of education. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Sessions. Senator Schumer is recognized for 15 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first, just a little housekeeping. I think tomorrow is the day that it's due for us to submit written questions, and you'll have no problem getting those back to us before we have to vote, which I think by the agreement of the chairman and the ranking member will be next Thursday. Will you? Well, depends how many there are. I will... Uh, <laughs> My answers will be fuller the fewer questions there are, but I will certainly, uh, I will certainly, uh, obviously, make every effort to get them in as Thank soon you. as possible. Next question: uh, We've had a great debate here about uh, in this Senate and with the administration about the uh, documents. There were 16 cases, I think, led by Senator Leahy that the eight of us requested. Um, when you were Principal Deputy Solicitor General. Now, we know the administration has said they will not relinquish those documents. I just want to know, and I'm not asking your view on the law, do you have a personal objection if they were to give us those documents? Because you wrote them. Uh, Senator, I don't think it's appropriate for me to take a position if a client is asserting a privilege. Um, I don't think the attorney should be stating a position on it because in these situations the privilege is that of the client and for the attorney to take a position would could might put pressure on the client and I, may not I get, think that's uh, inappropriate. I may not get this. Aren't they the attorney and you the client this time? Well, when the memos were prepared I was the attorney and okay. they were so you won't take a position on it? I, I don't think it's appropriate okay. for a lawyer to do so. Now. now, yesterday, as I told you, I was sort of confounded by the refusal to answer certain questions. I don't think any of us expected you'd answer every question or answer the an give us the answer the way we wanted. But we did hope that you would answer enough questions with enough specificity so that we and the American people would get a clear picture of the kind of chief justice you will be, not just rely on your assurances. So I want to try this another way, because I really want to find out. You're one of the best litigators in America. You know how to convince people. That's what you've been paid to do for a long time. So let me ask you, if you were sitting here, what question would you ask John Roberts um, so that we could be, so that you or us could be sure that we weren't nominating what I call an ideologue, someone who you might define as somebody who wants to make law, not interpret law. And then how would you answer the question you asked yourself? <laughs> I begin by saying, well, that's a good question, sir. Uh, uh, I think, uh, with respect, I, I would ask a lot of the questions that, that have been asked. Um, a lot of the questions that were asked in the questionnaire uh, that I uh, completed uh, earlier. And it begins with the most important question. What is your view of the proper role of a judge in our system? And people have different answers to that question. Um, I've given an answer to that question. Um, uh, how do you approach particular cases in areas of particular interest? And I've been asked that question, and I've given an answer. I've explained, for example, in the area of executive power, uh, as issues arise, what would the framework that I would use would be? And I've talked about the Youngstown opinion and Justice Jackson's framework there. I've talked about how I would approach cases uh, uh, involving the right to privacy under the Liberty Clause. I've talked about how I would approach cases involving government enforcement in the anti How about something that you haven't talked, a question that hasn't been asked? Well, um, since some of us are still 
Well, unsure. But in other areas, people talk about, uh, and it's a, uh, personal views on issues. And uh, there again, I think it's important. There may be some nominees who want to share personal views on issues. Uh, my reaction has been to emphasize, and I think this tells you about what kind of a judge I, I, I hope I am on the Court of Appeals and what kind of a justice I would be if confirmed. And my reaction has been that I set those personal views aside. And so don't consider them pertinent. Other nominees might take a different approach in response to those types of uh, questions. Uh, people have asked about particular decisions. Uh, and I've talked about decisions in which I've been involved. Uh, we've talked about, uh, with Senator Grassley, about the Totten case in which I was involved. Uh, others about the Barber case involving Congress's power under the spending clause. People have asked very probing questions about my legal positions. Um, uh, what did you, what was the position you were advocating in this case and why? I think it's fair to talk about the record. Any question that you would ask that's been left out? Um, there have been a lot of questions asked and a lot answered. I can't think of any that, you know, I, I expected people to ask me about this and it hasn't been asked. I, right. I, I think... So I guess we did, did a better job than we think we did, right? I think the committee has been very effective over the last several days in uh, learning a lot about me. I think in the process of meeting with the senators before, and I was quite serious when I said I appreciated how accommodating everyone had been in, in sitting down with me. I think people learned a lot about me. I think you can learn a lot about me from looking at the 50 opinions I've written. You can learn about me, if I might. Um, I want to go back to the Commerce Clause, which bothers me, as you know. Um, again, apart from anybody's view, do you agree that the Congress has the power under the Commerce Clause to regulate activities that are purely local so long as Congress finds that the activities exert a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce? If, if the, the question, and this is where the issue comes up, is whether or not, and the court has addressed it, the activities are commercial. If the activities are commercial in nature, you get to aggregate them under Wickard against Filburn that we've talked about. You don't have to look at just that particular activity. You look at the activity in general. Uh, where the dispute and issue has come in is whether the activities are, are commercial. That's where the disagreement, or the point I was trying to make in the infamous or famous Toad case. I was saying if, if you should look at this as commercial activity, then you can. Do you believe activate. Congress deserves a great deal? This is in reference to some of the things Senator Specter talked about, that Congress deserves a great deal of deference when it decides something is commercial? and has findings to that effect? Um, I, I do, Senator, and I think that is the basic theme that runs through the court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence. There is, again, of course, the, the Lopez and Morrison decisions, but there's also the Raich decision. And again, I think it's very important to consider, and what the Raich decision said is, you've got to consider Lopez and Morrison in the context of this broad sweep, not just as sort of the only decisions. Okay. Let me ask you then this hypothetical. Um, and that is that uh, it came to our attention, Congresses, through a relatively and inexpensive simple process, individuals were now able to clone certain species of animals, maybe an arroyo toad. Didn't go over it, didn't pass over state lines. You could somehow do it without doing any of that. Under the Commerce Clause, can Congress pass a law banning even non-commercial cloning? 
I appreciate it's a hypothetical, and you will as well, so I, I don't mean to be giving binding opinions, but it would seem to me that Congress can make a determination that this is an activity, uh, if allowed to be pursued, that is going to have effects on interstate commerce. It, obviously, if you are successful in cloning an animal, uh, that's not going to be simply a local phenomenon. That's going to be something people are going to... So if you can leave it at that, that's a good answer as far as I'm concerned. Okay, what I'd like to do is say a few concluding words here with a final request. Uh, first, I want to thank you for holding up so well during the three days of grueling questions. Uh, many of the, us on this committee, probably every one of us, some more than others, has been wrestling with how to vote on your nomination since well before the hearing started, and of course now that process has accelerated. I, for one, have woken up in the middle of the night thinking about it, being unsure how to vote. Now, I think my colleague from Delaware was on to something when he called this a roll of the dice. But this is a vote on the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. You will in all likelihood affect every one of our lives in many ways for a whole generation. So this isn't just rolling the dice, it's betting the whole house. And I thought I'd share with you some of uh, the thoughts of some of us with important questions. There are pros and cons. On the pro side, first of all, is your brilliance. You have an amazing knowledge of the law. You spent three days here talking of so many aspects of it without any paper in front of you, without a single aide coming over and whispering in your ear or passing you a note. Your knowledge of law and the way of presenting it's a tour de force. You may very well possess the most powerful intellect of any person to come before the Senate for this position. Second on the pro side is that you seem to be a lawyer above all. You've devoted your entire life to the law, and it's clear that you love it. Most people in that position tend not to be ideologues. They'll follow the law wherever it takes them, regardless of the consequences, and you have repeatedly professed that to be true for you. But given that you've spent most of your legal life representing others and your limited tenure on the Court of Appeals didn't allow you to rule on very many non-technical cases, there's not a long enough track record to prove that point. The third and the perhaps the most important, at least to me, is your judicial philosophy of modesty and stability. Such a theory respects precedent, the Congress and other judges' opinions. Modest jurists tend not to be ideologues, and many of us on this side of the aisle would like the court to maintain, and in cases related to the Commerce Clause like Morrison, increase its modesty. But in complicated decisions like this one, there's always a counterpoint, even on the modesty question. Yesterday you said that the decision of Brown v. Board could be described as modest. Brown v. Board was breathtaking. It was wonderful. It reversed 80 years of accepted but bad law, yes, but modest? So I ask myself, could overturning Wickard or Roe also be modest by your definition? Nonetheless, I think the philosophy of modesty is an appealing, important, and unifying philosophy to many of us. Let me go to the con side here. Um, first is the question of compassion and humanity. I said on the first days of these hearings, it's important to determine not just the quality of your mind, but the fullness of your heart, which to, I think, a good number of us at least on both sides of the aisle really mean the ability to truly empathize with those who are less fortunate 
and who often need the protections of the government and the assistance of the law to have any chance at all. It didn't seem much, for instance, to concede that the wording, illegal amigos, was unfortunate, yet you refused to say so. America has moved in the 21st century beyond what Senator Kennedy called the cramped view of civil rights professed in the early er, Reagan administration. But you wouldn't admit now, in 2005, that any of those views you argued for in the early 80s were misguided with the hindsight of history. That's troubling. Second is the refusal of the administration to let us see any documents you wrote when you served as Deputy Solicitor General, when you were not simply following policy, which you've reminded us in your earlier days there and in the Council's office, but making it. This would have given us tremendous insight into who you are, into knowing who you are and what kind of justice you'd make. But for what seemed to be self-serving reasons, they were refused. Now, this was not your decision. But you carry its burden, and I think we all have to consider it uh, when weighing had a vote. Third, and most important on the con side, is your refusal to answer so many of our questions. I know you feel you were more forthcoming than most any other nominee to the High Court. I must disagree. You certainly were more forthcoming than a few. Now, for instance, I don't know Justice Scalia's opinion on Dr. Zhivago. But most answered more relevant questions than you did. Your refusal to comment on any issue that you thought may come before the court. We learned a lot about your views on older, completely discredited cases like Lochner and Plessy and Korematsu, but they're not of much help to us. What we need to know are the kinds of things that are coming before the court now and it makes it hard to figure out what kind of justice you will be, particularly in light of the fact we have little else to go on. You did speak at length on many issues and sounded like you were conveying your views to us. But when one went back and read the transcript each evening, there was less than met the ear that afternoon. Perhaps that's a job of a good litigator, but in too many instances it didn't serve the purpose of the hearing. Having said that about documents and... Uh, Questions. Obtaining documents and answering questions are a means to an end, not an end in itself. In some cases, like Miguel Estrada's nomination, we had no knowledge of his views, so we couldn't vote. But here there's clearly some evidence. So now we must take the evidence we have and try to answer the fundamental question. What kind of justice will John Roberts be? Will you be a truly modest, temperate, careful judge in the tradition of Harlan, Jackson, Frankfurter, and Friendly? Will you be a very conservative judge who will impede congressional prerogatives but does not use the bench to remake society like Justice Rehnquist? Or will you use your enormous talents to use the court to turn back a near century of progress and create the majority that Justices Scalia and Thomas could not achieve? That's the question that we on the committee will have to grapple with this week. And over the next week, if you have any inf more information that could help us answer this question, I think every one of us would welcome it. Thank you, Judge. Uh, Mr. Thank Mr. You, Judge. Chairman. Senator Schumer. Mr. Wait, Chairman. Wait, wait, wait just a minute. I'll recognize you in a moment. Uh, Judge Roberts, uh, uh, <laughs> Senator Schumer has 
postulated quite a number of questions in his last uh, soliloquy, uh, but uh, they're summarized in uh, what kind of a justice he'd be, and I think uh, you're entitled to respond to that if you care to do so. Right. That, was now, my, that was going to be my request. I well, think in that case, uh, go ahead and make your request. <laughs> yes, I, I think... Um, better, better the request comes from you than from me, Senator Feinstein. I think that Senator Schumer really summed up the dilemmas, and not only he has them on, on our side. I would very much like if you would respond, particularly to the con side, the pro side speaks for itself. And many of us are struggling with exactly that. What kind of a justice would you be, John Roberts? Well, um, no, no time limit, Judge. Well, um, I appreciate the comments very much, Senator Schumer. Um, and I very much appreciate the pro uh, side of the ledger. Um, on the con side, um, the issue of documents, um, it's hard for me to comprehend that there could be more documents. Uh, uh, the numbers been ranging from 80,000 to 100,000, um, uh, and there is a lot of paper uh, out there. Uh, I have tried to be as fully responsive as I thought, consistent with my obligations as a sitting judge and a nominee. And I appreciate that this is not a new issue. Uh, you've gone back and read the transcripts and, of course, participated. Uh, I've gone back and read the transcripts. It comes up at every nomination. Uh, the, the, uh, in some instances, members of the committee want more information that the nominee feels that he or she can give in, in good conscience. That's nothing, that's nothing new. Um, I've tried to be uh, as fully expansive as I can be and drawn the line where, as a practical matter, I think it's, it's necessary and appropriate. The basic question, Senator Feinstein, Senator Schumer, uh, what kind of a justice would I be? Um, that is the judgment you have to make. Um, I would begin, I think, if I were in your shoes, um, and, uh, with what kind of a judge I've been. Um, I appreciate that it's only been a little more than two years, uh, but you do have 50 opinions. You can look at those. And Senator Schumer, uh, I don't think you can read those opinions and say that these are the opinions of an ideologue. Um, you may think they're not enough. You may think you need more of a sample. Uh, that's your judgment. But I think if you've looked at what I've done uh, since I took the judicial oath, uh, that should convince you that I'm not an ideologue. And you and I agree that that's not the sort of person we want uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, beyond that, uh, I have uh, the few days that I've been here, all the documents, the questionnaire. You have not just my opinions, but my briefs. I think those also help show what kind of a judge I would be. You, of course, appreciate that that's presenting a position, and I'm just an advocate. But advocates deal with the law in different ways. You can look at other people's briefs, I think, and conclude that that person may not be a good judge because of the way they argue the law. I would hope you'd looked at, look at my briefs um, and my arguments before the Supreme Court and conclude that that's a person who respects the law, respects the court before whom he is arguing, um, and will approach the law in a similar way uh, as a judge. Mr. Chairman, thank you, Judge thank you, Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chairman? Mr. Chairman? Senator Warner? 
I might have uh, three minutes, um, I just want to ask the, the witness to, to explain his uh, the, the rationale as he understands it for the privilege. Senator Cornyn, you're recognized for three minutes. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, it strikes me as odd having been on the committee uh, last year when we had an unfortunate theft of internal uh, documents um, between uh, uh, that were written by staffers of individual senators and which were then uh, published to the outside world and I there was bipartisan uh, outrage over that and we as I recall referred that matter for investigation and possible prosecution uh, but surely if the legislative branch is entitled to confidential communications uh, between our lawyers uh, and us so we can do our jobs and get candid advice, the executive or the president is entitled to the same sort of uh, confidential and candid communications. And Judge, this is the question. Uh, I don't want anybody to be under the misapprehension that, the, uh, that number one, it's within your power to produce additional documents. It's hard to imagine there are in, ex in addition to the 100,000 that have already been produced. But um, I want to give you a chance to articulate uh, the reasons why um, the law recognizes this importance of a uh, confidential, candid communication between a, a client and the lawyer uh, that cannot be readily uh, overrun uh, or trumped. And uh, would you uh, give that a shot, please? Well, I mean, certainly the basic attorney-client privilege goes back centuries, um, and there have been eloquent expressions of its value in the Supreme Court. Um, I think of the Upjohn opinion from, from 1981 uh, uh, in the Supreme Court, um, and other uh, classic expressions. And the idea is that if we want people to benefit from the advice that lawyers can give, we have to ensure that they feel perfectly free to communicate and exchange their views with their lawyer without fear that that would be reviewed and used uh, to their prejudice. Carried forward to the point that we're talking about now, you have to have a candid exchange among lawyers in presenting cases uh, to the court uh, in order to effectively represent your client, whether your client is the government of the United States or a private uh, company. And uh, that type of a debate, uh, which often involves pointing out inconsistencies in the decision, even flaws in your own legal position. Say this is the argument, but this part of the argument is really quite weak and we have to be worried about that. Uh, uh, those sorts of things you do need to thrash out and discuss and uh, elaborate on, and yet if that was then revealed to your adversary uh, or to the court, it would obviously prejudice the presentation. And if those things were going to be regularly revealed, people wouldn't make those types of uh, analyses and judgments. They wouldn't say, this is a weak argument. What are we going to do about that? Should we really make that argument? That would not commit those to writing, and the adequacy of the legal counsel and advice would suffer, and the role of the advocate before the court in vindicating the rule of law on which the courts rely would also suffer. Mr. Chairman, it may already be part of the record, but if it's not, I would ask unanimous consent at this point in the record that uh, we would uh, uh, make the letter of former solicitor generals appointed both by Democrat presidents and Republican presidents who agree 
that these Solicitor General memos should remain protected by uh, the privilege uh, part of the record. Without objection, so ordered. Senator Durbin, you're recognized for 20 minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Judge Roberts, again, thank you. And uh, you'll be maybe nearing the end of the process, which I'm sure is a great relief to you and your wife and friends. Let me first address Senator Cornyn's point. The memos that were stolen from offices of the senators on this committee, stolen by a Republican staffer who was discharged. That case was turned over to the Justice Department. I sent a letter to the Attorney General yesterday applauding the fact that the Justice Department had in fact successfully prosecuted in Massachusetts a person who had hacked in and stolen the telephone records of Paris Hilton. And I asked the Attorney General to please ask our special counsel in this case to take a look at the precedent of the Paris Hilton case and see if he can perhaps protect our records as much as we want to protect that poor young lady's telephone records. The second aspect I'd like to raise is this. Many of these documents we're talking about have been given before. Uh, Justice Rehnquist offered similar documents to the committee for consideration. So it's not unprecedented for us to ask, nor for the government to produce them on a voluntary basis. No theft involved. If I could clear up a couple other things that have been raised, I read and reread the sentence which you and Senator Kennedy debated about the EEOC, and I want to read it again, conceding the fact that the word un-American is in quotes and clearly refers to something else. But the sentence in your memo reads in its entirety as follows. We should ignore that assertion in any event, as well as the assertion that the EEOC is un-American, the truth of the matter notwithstanding. Now those are your words, but for the quoted un-American. What did you mean when you say the truth of the matter notwithstanding? It suggests that you agree with that conclusion. The first part of the sentence refers to that assertion. And that assertion was the assertion that President Reagan had promised to abolish the EEOC. That was the issue that I said in the memorandum. I had been unable to determine whether that was accurate or not. It was the truth of that matter, of that assertion, uh, that I couldn't verify. Uh, the reference to un-American was not my language. It was the language of the person who complained and said, you need to do something about the EEOC. And our response was, we're not, what we're going to do is make sure that the EEOC is not interfered with because of your complaints. Now, he may have felt that he was being treated in an un-American way uh, and wanted something done about it, uh, but it was not my view. And again, the language was in quotes to make clear that it wasn't my view. I, I don't question the fact the language was in quotes, but I think there is at least some ambiguity in what was said. It might have been said more precisely if it did not truly, if the conclusion that we're suggesting doesn't reflect your views. I, I, if I could, I'd like to return to a, a discussion that we had uh, yesterday about um, a very fundamental question. It was. I asked you yesterday about a case that you handled as an attorney involving a large HMO. Uh, in which you advanced a very narrow reading of an Illinois state law, had your position prevailed, millions of American families stood the risk of losing coverage for their health insurance. You did not prevail. And as you mentioned, closely divided court, which again underlines the importance of each new justice as we consider them, but your position did not prevail. Let me read what you said to me in, in response. You said you told me you had no reservations about taking the case, and here's what you said, quote, 
My practice has been to take the cases that come to me, and if the other side in that case had come to me first, I would have taken their side. End of quote. I want to follow up on this. You have taken some pride in the pro bono cases that you have taken, and I'm glad you have. I think that is part of being a professional, accepting pro bono cases. You were asked the other day about your participation in the 1996 case of Romer versus Evans, a landmark case that struck down a Colorado law that would have taken away the rights of gay and lesbian Americans. You gave some legal advice to the lawyer in this case who was trying to uphold the rights of those with different sexual orientation. So I'll ask you, if the other side had come to you first and said, Mr. Roberts, we would like to, you to defend this state amendment that took away the rights of gays and lesbians, would you have taken the case? Um, it's a hypothetical question. Of course, I think I probably would have, Senator. Um, I actually have done pro bono assistance for states uh, on a regular basis through the National Association of Attorneys General. And if I'm remembering right, the state was the would have been the other party in that case. Uh, I think that's right. Um, and um, through the state and local legal center, um, I participate in moot courts for the states on a regular basis. Um, and part of a big part of my practice was representing states so if a state in that case Colorado had come to me and said we have a case in the Supreme Court would you defend it I might again I can't answer without knowing the full details and all that and I'd uh, I have to look at the legal issues and I would not and never have presented legal arguments that I thought were not reasonable arguments uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to prevail and I've certainly lost my share of cases but um, it, it has not been my general view that I sit in judgment uh, on clients uh, when they come to me. I view that as the job of the court when I was a lawyer. Um, and uh, just as, as someone once said, you know, it's the, it's the guilty people who really need a good lawyer. Uh, uh, I also view, view that I don't evaluate whether I as a judge would agree with a particular position when somebody comes to me for what I did, which was provide legal advice and assistance, particularly before the Supreme Court. I have a long series of hypotheticals I won't get into, such as, all right, would you have represented that D.C. government against the welfare families? You are, took pride, you spoke to me of your pride in representing the poor people in the District of Columbia on their welfare rights. I could ask you whether you would have taken the, the side of the Board of Education in the Brown case would you have taken the side of the state of Virginia and loving? I, I could have gone through all those hypotheticals. The purpose is, and the purpose of my original question was this. All of us are trying to get down to what are your core values. Where would you draw a line saying, I do have principles and values. There are certain things I would not use my legal skills to do because they conflict with those values. It, if this is just a, a, a process, a legal contest, and you'll play for any team that asks you to play, it, it raises a question about where would you draw the line if you would ever draw the line. And I think that is why I've asked this question, and I want to give you an opportunity now to tell us. Senator Feinstein asked uh, a little earlier today about the Plyler case. You came a little bit further than you did last night in saying, and I think this is a very safe assertion, children deserve an education. That is not exactly a, that isn't a headline. Uh, but I think that what I'd like to get to is the original question here. As a lawyer, 
do you have standards and values as to the causes and beliefs that are so important to you where you would draw a line? Well, let me try to answer it this way, uh, Senator. People become lawyers uh, for different reasons, um, all perfectly good and noble and uh, legitimate. Uh, people who are interested, for example, uh, in protecting the environment often will go into the law and practice environmental law because they think that's an effective way to advance a cause in which they passionately believe. People who are committed to the cause of civil rights may become lawyers and become civil rights lawyers and present and press those causes because they're causes in which they passionately believe. Um, uh, I became a lawyer. Um, or at least developed as a lawyer because I believe in the rule of law. It was the point I was trying to emphasize in my opening statement uh, that all of these other areas, you believe in civil rights, you believe in environmental protection, whatever the area might be, believe in rights for the disabled, um, you're not going to be able or effectively to vindicate those rights if you don't have a place that you can go where you know you're going to get a decision based on the rule of law. It was the point I was making with respect to the Soviet Constitution, filled with wonderful sounding rights, absolutely meaningless, because people who suffered under that system had no place they could go in court and say, my rights have been violated. Um, so as, that's why I became a lawyer to promote and vindicate the rule of law. Now that means that that's an issue in play regardless of what the cause is. And that's why, as I was ex we were talking yesterday, uh, you can go in my record and you'll see, yes, I've advanced cases uh, promoting the cause of the environment. Uh, as I was discussing earlier, I've been on both sides of the affirmative action issue. Take even technical areas like antitrust. I've defended corporations. I've sued corporations. Um, in each case, I appreciated that what I was doing as a lawyer, particularly as a lawyer before the Supreme Court, was promoting the rule of law uh, in our adversary system. And I view that as, I, I appreciate that to some they may say, uh, well, that sounds like you're a hired gun to be disparaging. You're going to go, you're going to take the side of whoever comes in the door first. Um, I, I think that's a disparaging way to capture what is an, in fact, an ennobling truth about our legal system that lawyers serve the rule of law above and beyond representing particular clients. That's why when the uh, Chief Justice welcomes new members to the Supreme Court bar, he welcomes them as, as members of the bar and as officers of the court because that is the important role that they play. That has significance for what types of arguments they can present and how they can present them. Well, if I might say, Judge, if you've made one point many times over during the course of the last three days is that as a judge, you will be loyal and faithful to the process of law, to the rule of law. I think that is without question from what you've said. I accept that on its face. But the, the questions which we continue to ask you really try to go beyond that. Because I said at the outset that I thought one of the real measures as to whether or not you should be on the Supreme Court goes back to a point Senator Simon had made. Would you restrict freedom in America or would you expand it? When you are defending gays and lesbians who are being restricted in their rights by the Colorado Amendment, you are trying, from my point of view, to expand freedom in America. That, to me, is a positive thing. That's my personal philosophy and point of view. 
But then when you say, if the state would have walked in the door first to restrict freedoms, I would have taken them as a client too, I wonder, where are you? Beyond loyalty to the process of law, how do you view this law when it comes to expanding our personal freedom? Is it important enough for you to say, in some instances, I will not use my skills as a lawyer because I don't believe that that is a cause that is consistent with my values and belief? That's what I've been asking of. Well, and the I, I had someone ask me in this process, I don't remember who it was, um, but somebody asked me, um, uh, you know, are you going to be on the side of, of the little guy? Um, and uh, you obviously want to give uh, an immediate answer, but as you reflect on it, uh, if the Constitution says that the little guy should win, the little guy is going to win in court before me. But if the Constitution says that the big guy should win, well, then the big guy is going to win, because my obligation is to the Constitution. That's the oath. The oath that a judge takes is not that um, I'll look out for particular interests, I'll be on the side of particular interests. The oath is to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States, and that's what I would do. Would you at least concede that you would take into consideration that in our system of justice, the race goes to the swift, and the swift are those with the resources, the money, the lawyers, the power in the system, and that many times the powerless, the person who has struggled and clawed their way to your courtroom, went through a wall of adversity which the powerful never had to face. Is that part of your calculation? Absolutely. And it's, it's again, what's carved above the doors to the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. And the judicial oath talks about doing justice without regard to persons, to rich and to poor. And that, of course, is, is critically important. Um, you do have to appreciate that there are going to be interests who for one reason or another, uh, uh, don't have the same resources as people on the other side. The idea is not to give the case to the side with the best resources, the side with the best lawyers, the side with uh, the most opportunity to prepare it and present it. It is to decide the case according to the law and according to the Constitution. And as a uh, case after case in the Supreme Court shows, that's often the prisoner who's sitting in his cell and writes his petition out longhand. Uh, sometimes the Constitution is on that person's side and not on the side of the corporation with the fancy printed brief. But the judge's obligation is to appreciate that the rule of law uh, requires that both of those be treated equally uh, under the law. Judge Roberts, thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, uh, Senator Durbin. Thank you. Judge Roberts, uh, well, questions will be submitted to you within 24 hours, uh, and uh, you've already stated your uh, uh, commitment to uh, answer the questions, uh, and you can't be totally open-ended because you don't know how many questions there will be, but uh, Mr. Chairman? Uh, I have a strong uh, inclination that uh, however many questions there are, you will be able to uh, answer them. In, you will appropriate course. Uh, We're now going to move into a closed session. Uh, uh, Senator Graham. Uh, uh, yes, Mr. Chairman. Uh, you are recognized. Just for, for a couple of minutes. Um, I'm trying to compile questions from the past. <clears throat>
where the answers were very similar to the answers of uh, Judge Roberts about I can't comment, I can't give you, I can't answer your question because it may compromise my integrity. The judge in the future, and I would uh, ask for permission of the committee to get a chance to organize this because there's so many volumes. And what I would like to be able to demonstrate to the committee that the pattern that he's displayed in terms of saying I can't give you an answer because it may disqualify me is not unique to the Senate and very similar to, to past nominations and got some examples of that. But if I may, and I know we've been here and Lord knows this guy's been through the ringer, I just want to comment a little bit about an unhealthy area I think we find ourselves in in the last hour. <clears throat> Most of us are lawyers and I would hate to be judged by the people I've represented in the past totally. I've represented some people that are not very nice, but I gave them my all. I've represented people on Air Force bases that were so unpopular, Judge Roberts, that no one would eat with me because it was my job as the Area Defense Counsel to represent that person your heart. Nobody can question your intellect because it would be a question of their intellect to question yours. <laughs> so we're down to the heart. And is it all coming down to that? Well, they're all kind of hearts. They're bleeding hearts. And they're hard hearts. And if I wanted to judge Justice Ginsburg on her heart, I might take a hard-hearted view of her and say she's a bleeding heart. She represents the ACLU. She wants the age of consent to be 12. She believes there's a constitutional right to prostitution. What kind of heart is that? Well, she has a different value system than I do. But that doesn't mean she doesn't have a good heart. And I want this committee to understand that if we go down this road of putting people's hearts in play, and the only way you can have a good heart is adopt my value system, we're doing a great disservice to the judiciary. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Graham. Uh, we are now going to go into executive session under Senate Rule 26 to review the FBI report, which is standard for all the judicial nominees, Supreme Court or Court of Appeals or District Court, and to consider any other investigative issue that members of the committee may have. During Senator Biden's tenure as chairman, the practice was initiated of conducting routine closed sessions with each nominee for the Supreme Court to ask the nominee on the record under oath about all investigative charges against the person, uh, if there were any. Uh, these hearings are routinely conducted for every Supreme Court nominee, even where there are no investigative issues to be resolved. In so doing, those outside the committee cannot infer that the committee has received adverse confidential information about a nominee. Uh, the committee and uh, uh, Judge Roberts will now proceed to Dirksen 226, which is right down the hall. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I understand. I understand. Also, following our 
our practice, the uh, uh, Republican Council and the uh, Democratic Council normally work together on such issues. We'll brief the committee. Uh, uh, Senator Lee, that, uh, that is correct. Thank you. Uh, we expect to return uh, to here uh, our first outside witness, the American Bar Association, just as soon as we conclude this. We want to move ahead as promptly as we can, so uh, th those witnesses should be uh, uh, available. And we will now uh, adjourn to 226 in this building. Our next witness is uh, Congressman John Lewis of Georgia, an architect of the historic March on Washington in August of 1963, been the representative for Georgia's 5th Congressional District since November of 1986 when he was elected, took office in January, B.A. in Religion and Philosophy from Fisk University, graduate of American Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you uh, for crossing the rotunda today, uh, Congressman Lewis, and we look forward to your testimony. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman and distinguished members of the committee, I'm honored to be here today. As many of you know, this is not the first time I've come before this committee. I was here 14 years ago when the nomination of another justice to the Supreme Court moved me to speak out. I'm here today with the hope that this committee will hear my words and take heed. When I was growing up in rural Alabama, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women. I used to ask my parents, my grandparents, why racism? Why racial discrimination? And they would tell me, don't get in trouble. Don't get in the way. As a participant in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, I decided to get in the way. I was beaten, arrested, and jailed more than 40 times for peaceful, nonviolent protests against legalized segregation in the South. During that time, I saw American citizens with their hair cracked open by nightsticks, lying in the streets, weeping from tear gas, trampled by horses, and attacked by police dogs, calling helplessly for medical aid. Back then, legalized discrimination was enforced by state and local officials. The federal government was our only hope and we depended on the Supreme Court to act as a sympathetic referee in the struggle for justice and civil rights. I remember on one occasion when the court issued a decision on public transportation, an elderly black woman was overheard to say, God Almighty has spoken from Washington. In 1965, George Roberts was only 10 years old. He may be a brilliant lawyer, but I wonder whether he can really understand the depth of what it took to get the Voting Rights Act passed. The right to vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful, nonviolent tool we have in a democratic society. As many of you know, I gave a little blood on the Edna Pettus Bridge, but some of my friends and colleagues gave all they had, their very lives, for the right to vote. People stood day after day in unmovable lines to pass their so-called literacy tests. They had to interpret some section of the Constitution. 
count the number of jelly beans in a jar or the number of bubbles in a bar of soap to register to vote. I fear that if Judge Roberts is confirmed to be the Chief Justice of the United States, the Supreme Court will no longer hear the people's cries for justice. I feel that the leadership of the court will promote politics over the protection of individual rights and liberties. If the federal courts had abandoned us in the civil rights movement in the name of judicial restraint, we might still be struggling with the burden of legal segregation in America today. Judge Roberts' memos reveal him to be hostile towards civil rights, affirmative action, and the Voting Rights Act. He has even said that Voting Rights Act violation, and I quote, should not be made too easy to prove. Under the court's decision in Mobile versus Bolden, the court weakened the Voting Rights Act. Under this ruling, many political subdivisions would have been permitted to maintain a large election system diluting minority voting strength. This may be less obvious than the violence and intimidation of the 1965, but it is no less harmful to our nation's principles of inclusive democracy. Section 2 has been successful in reducing barriers and has increased the number of minority elected officials. There is no doubt, Mr. Chairman, in my mind that had Judge Robert narrow reading of the Voting Rights Act prevail, few people of color will be serving in Congress and at both the state and local level today. As a nation is still reeling from the tragic Hurricane Katrina, the timing of these hearings could not be more significant. What happened in New Orleans and along the Gulf Coast of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana exposed the issue of race, class, and fairness yet again. We are still a nation deeply divided by race and class. All Americans, by every race, or every religion, or nationality, whether they are women or men, gay or straight, of people with disability, all of us need equal access to a fair and independent judiciary to ensure equal justice under the law. The stakes are higher than ever. We cannot afford to elevate an individual to such a powerful position whose record demonstrates such a strong design to reverse the hard-won civil rights gain that so many of us sacrifice so much to achieve. We've come a great distance. We cannot afford to stand still. We cannot afford to go back. We must go forward to the creation of one America. My friends, members of the Senate, I implore you to get in the way. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Congressman Lewis, for those very uh, passionate remarks. Our next witness is Commissioner Jennifer Maceres, U.S. Commission for Civil Rights. Uh, taught at the Suffolk Law School as a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. In uh, the year 2000, Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly rated her as one of the state's top ten lawyers of the year. Practiced law with the Boston firm of Ropes and Gray. Thank you for joining us, uh, Commissioner Viserys, and we look forward to your testimony. Thank you. Chairman Spector, Senator Leahy, members of the committee. My name is Jennifer Briseris. I'm a resident of Massachusetts and a member of the Massachusetts Bar and the Hispanic National Bar Association. 
I am, as you said, a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, and I'm privileged to serve by appointment of the President as a Commissioner on the United States Commission on Civil Rights. I am honored to be here today to support the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the United States. Although I do not know Judge Roberts personally, I am generally familiar with his background and record. His distinguished career and his testimony before this committee make clear to even the most casual observer that Judge Roberts is eminently well qualified for the post. Despite these obvious qualifications, however, Opponents of Judge Roberts criticize his record on a variety of matters that loosely fall under the umbrella of civil rights. These critics allege that Judge Roberts' confirmation to be Chief Justice will somehow be harmful to women and minorities. These charges are at best misplaced and at worst deliberately misleading attacks that would have been leveled against anyone nominated by this president. There are at least five reasons why such criticisms are without merit. First, many of the specific criticisms of Judge Roberts' record involve positions he advocated as a lawyer in the administrations of Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Some of the subjects that have elicited criticism by interest groups include school busing, racial quotas, the revision of the voting rights legislation to seek equal electoral results as opposed to equal access, and the theory of comp comparable worth. Published reports indicate that the positions taken by Judge Roberts in this capacity as a lawyer for the Reagan and Bush administrations are broadly consistent with the views of the American people and fully within the political mainstream. But even if they were not, the arguments expressed by Judge Roberts as a young man decades ago are arguments on behalf of the administrations for which he worked not the views of a neutral umpire asked to rule on particular legislation. Judge Roberts' view of the judicial function does not contemplate the imposition of his own policy preferences from the bench. His commitment to judicial restraint should give Americans of all political viewpoints great comfort. Second, it is clear from the public record that Judge Roberts supports the vigorous enforcement of our nation's anti-discrimination laws. In his executive branch memos, Judge Roberts repeatedly defended the, quote, bedrock principle of treating people on the basis of merit without regard to race or sex, unquote. And he argued numerous times for the executive branch to prosecute claims of unequal treatment to the fullest extent of the law. Third, as an advocate, Judge Roberts has been on both sides of controversial civil rights questions. This broad experience should give the American people faith in Judge Roberts' ability to understand the complexity of controversial issues. Fourth, it is clear that Judge Roberts has a strong commitment to equal opportunity and to the anti-discrimination principle embodied in the 14th Amendment and codified in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He has written, and I quote, before the law, we do not stand as black or white, Gentile or Jew, Hispanic or Anglo, but only as Americans entitled to equal justice. Certainly, there is nothing extreme or unusual about this view. To the contrary, it embodies the American ideal. 
It reflects the aspirations of the 14th Amendment, which were given life by the court in Brown versus Board of Education and by the framers of the 1964 Act. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, irresponsible rhetoric that a court led by Judge Roberts would be hostile to civil rights misinterprets the role of the court in our democracy. This rhetoric is based on several deeply flawed premises. First, such rhetoric presumes that it is the job of the court to create new rights in response to evolving circumstances. It is not. Our Constitution guarantees certain basic rights which the courts must, of course, enforce. Legislatures, both state and federal, may take those rights or create new ones, provided that they act within the scope of their constitutional authority. If citizens are in any way dissatisfied with the scope or reach of current law, it is to their democratically elected representatives, not the courts, that they must turn. Second, Judge Roberts' critics erroneously presume that courts should interpret all statutory language expansively. That is also not their role. Their role is to apply statutes as written. Commissioner Braceres, could you summarize the balance of your statement, please? Sure. Your full statement will be made a part of the record, as will all statements. The Supreme Court is neither the first nor the last word on civil rights, or any other issue for that matter. Each of the three branches of government has a role to play, and Judge Roberts respects and understands these distinct roles. In conclusion, I submit that Judge Roberts' critics have it wrong. Judge Roberts' commitments to the vigorous enforcement of our nation's civil rights laws and to the bedrock principles of judicial restraint, judicial review, and equal opportunity will make him a justice of whom all Americans can be proud. And I urge you to confirm him as the next Justice of the United Chief Justice of the United States. Thank you very much, Commissioner Bracharis. Uh, Senator Leahy has asked for recognition before we complete the panel. Senator Leahy. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, a classmate of mine from law school was supposed to testify. We changed this by a week as unable. I just want to make sure the testimony of uh, John W. Dean is put in the record at the uh, appropriate place. <clears throat> Without objection, it will be made a part of the record. Our next witness is Mr. Wade Henderson, who's the director of the Leadership Conference, a longstanding leader on, uh, on civil rights. Before his current position, he was a Washington Bureau Director of the NAACP, serves as the Rao Professor of Public Interest Law at the Clark School of Law, graduate of Howard University and the Rutgers University School of Law. I know you talked to David Rogg about a postponement of the hearing, and then events overtook us, and uh, the postponement uh, did take place. Thank you for joining us today, uh, Mr. Henderson, and uh, the floor is yours. Well, good afternoon, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your courtesies in giving us an additional week uh, because of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Again, my name is Wade Henderson, and I'm the executive director of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. The Leadership Conference is the nation's premier civil and human rights coalition and has coordinated the national legislative campaigns on behalf of every major civil rights law since 1957. The Leadership Conference's 190 member organizations represent persons of color, women, children, organized labor, individuals with disabilities, older Americans, major religious groups, gays and lesbians, and civil liberties and human rights groups. 
it's a privilege to represent the civil rights community in addressing the committee today. Based on reasons I will highlight here today, discussed at greater length in my written testimony, and after a careful review of John Roberts' available record, including his testimony before this committee, the leadership conference is compelled to oppose his confirmation to the position of Chief Justice of the United States. In the last several days of testimony, Judge Roberts has failed to distance himself from the anti-civil rights positions he has advocated. We have heard nothing demonstrating his commitment to ensuring that the federal government will continue to play a strong role in protecting civil and human rights of all Americans. To the contrary, all evidence indicates that Judge Roberts would use his undeniably impressive legal skills to bring us back to a country that most of us wouldn't recognize, where states' rights trump civil rights, where the federal courts or Congress can see discrimination but are powerless to remedy it. This is not the America in which most Americans want to live. As we've seen over the past two weeks in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, when the federal government's role is diminished, the least among us suffer most. Our nation fought a civil war over the meaning of equality in our Constitution and the role of the federal government in, assure, in ensuring that equality, and then engaged in a great debate about the power of the federal government to enforce the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Reconstruction failed, and African Americans were returned to a position of near servitude because those who advocated for weak federal power won. It wasn't until decades later when the court outlawed state-sponsored segregation in Brown versus the Board of Education, followed by the enactment of a series of civil rights statutes by Congress in the 1960s that are now the bedrock of our national commitment to equality of opportunity, that the federal government stepped in as a champion of equal justice under law. However, in recent years, we've seen the rise of a political movement that is an eerie parallel to the post-Reconstruction period. Today, there are those who, in the name of judicial restraint, advocate for a federal retreat in the area of civil rights. While our Constitution speaks of fundamental rights, some oppose the federal courts or Congress using the Constitution <laughs> to protect individuals against violations of those rights. John Roberts has written that federal courts should not be empowered to invalidate, quote, widely accepted state practices, unquote, even if such practices prevent African Americans and others from having equal opportunity in voting. If his view had prevailed, our country's voting rights revolution would never have happened. Would Judge Roberts have approved of poll taxes or literacy tests because those were quote, widely accepted practices, despite the strong recommendation from a very conservative member of the Reagan administration's civil rights team, John Roberts advised against intervention in a sex discrimination case against the Kentucky prison system, contending that discriminatory treatment of men and women in the prison's vocational program was, quote, reasonable in light of tight prison budgets, unquote. Would Judge Roberts then apply the same argument to equal educational opportunities for women generally? Could states, in the name of saving money, 
refused to provide equal health services to men and women. In John Roberts' view, Congress could exclude all school desegregation cases from the jurisdiction of the federal courts. This is, in effect, a pre-Brown vision that fits squarely into the objective of preventing the federal courts from fulfilling the promise of the 14th Amendment. As many commentators have made clear, John Roberts is a gifted and intelligent lawyer and advocate, but that is not the test for determining whether he is fit to lead the highest court in the land. Rather, the test is whether John Roberts has demonstrated he is committed to the fundamental principles on which our country was founded and whether his vision of America matches the expectations of mainstream Americans. John Roberts has failed this test. Therefore, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights has no choice but to oppose his confirmation. America can and should do better. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Henderson. Our next witness is uh, Commissioner Peter uh, Kersenow of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, had been Labor Counsel for the City of Cleveland. He's the Chair of the Board of Directors of the Center for New Black Leadership on the Advisory Board of the National Center for Public Policy Research, a graduate of Cornell, a law degree from Cleveland State with honors. Thank you for coming in today, uh, Commissioner, and uh, we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator Leahy, members of the committee. Uh, I am Peter Kersenow, a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and a partner in the Cleveland, Ohio law firm of Benner Friedlander, Copeland, and Aronoff in labor and employment practice. I'm here in my personal capacity. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights was established in 1957 to, among other things, act as a national clearinghouse for information related to denials of equal protection and discrimination. And in furtherance of that function, my assistant and I reviewed the opinions of Judge Roberts while on the D.C. Circuit related to civil rights and also a Supreme Court advocacy related to civil rights, particularly with respect to prevailing civil rights norms, jurisprudential norms, with particular attention to the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. Our examination reveals that Judge Roberts' approach to civil rights uh, is consistent with mainstream textual interpretation of the relevant constitutional and statutory authority and governing precedent. His opinions evince appreciable degrees of judicial restraint, modesty, and discipline, and in short, Judge Roberts' approach to civil rights is exemplary. It is legally sound, intellectually honest, and with a deep appreciation for the historical bases for civil rights laws. And our examination also reveals that several aspects of Judge Roberts' civil rights record have been mischaracterized, and sometimes the criticisms have been sorely misplaced. For example, conflating his counsel and advocacy on the part of clients with his own personal policy preferences. Just three brief examples. First, some have contended that during the 1982 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, Judge Roberts had adopted an anti-civil rights approach to the, or interpretation of the act. But the record definitively shows that Judge Roberts had consistently counseled in favor of reauthorization of the entire act as is. And he expressed the administration's concern that a substantive redefinition of Section 2 could risk introducing confusion and uncertainty into what had already been considered one of the nation's most successful pieces of civil rights legislation. Judge Roberts continued to advocate on behalf of his client for vigorous enforcement of Section 2 even after adoption of the effects test. Second, 
Some have claimed that Judge Roberts' position on affirmative action is regressive. Most of these criticisms relate to his questioning of a 1981 U.S. Commission on Civil Rights report pertaining to affirmative action. A detailed examination of that report shows that not only was Judge Roberts' criticism correct, but imperative. The Commission's report was inconsistent with the status of the law in 1981 when issued and fails to comport with the post-Adirondack Constructors versus Pena, Grutter versus Bollinger uh, affirmative action norms of today. Judge Roberts had properly advised against unlawful racial quotas and set-asides untethered to a proof of discrimination. He supported the, and we heard it earlier, quote, bedrock principle of treating people on the basis of merit without regard to race or sex. A third contention unsupported by examination is that Judge Roberts' arguments before the Supreme Court in civil rights matters were somehow extreme or out of the mainstream. Probabilities would di dictate that if Judge Roberts had somehow slipped past the Supreme Court's gatekeepers and got to make extremist arguments before the court, that the court would have dismissed virtually 100% of those arguments, or at a bare minimum, far more than 50%, which is the fate of most arguments before the court. Again, a review of the record shows that Judge Roberts' uh, arguments with respect to civil rights were agreed to by the Supreme Court 71% of the time hardly indicative of positions outside of prevailing civil rights norms. And these justices who agreed with him included those who might colloquially be described as conservative, such as Justice Rehnquist, who agreed with him 75% of the time, or Justices Scalia and Thomas, each of whom agreed with him 71% of the time. But they also include justices colloquially described as liberals, such as Justice Ginsburg, who agreed with him 60% of the time, Justice Souter, 59% of the time, Justice Stevens, 59% of the time, and even Justice Thurgood Marshall, the premier civil rights litigator, probably forever, agreed with his advocacy position 67% of the time, almost as much as Justices Scalia and Thomas, and more than Justice O'Connor. Mr. Chairman, it's respectfully submitted that Judge Roberts' 25-year record with respect to matters pertaining to civil rights demonstrates an unwavering commitment to equal protection and a comprehensive understanding of our civil rights laws that would make him an outstanding addition to the Supreme Court, particularly in the capacity of Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Commissioner. Our next witness and final witness on this panel is Judge Nathaniel Jones. Uh, had served as executive director of the Fair Employment Practice Commission, was an assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Ohio, directed NAACP litigation as general counsel for 10 years, a graduate of Youngstown State University, both bachelor's and law degrees, and served on the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and uh, is now uh, retired. Judge Jones, thank you for coming in today, and we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and uh, Senator Lay and esteemed members of the uh, committee. I am honored to have this opportunity to appear as a witness today to, I hope, assist you to more effectively evaluate <clears throat> the fitness of John G. Roberts to be confirmed as Chief Justice of the United States by providing an, an historical perspective. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I ask that my full statement be introduced in the record. Without objection, Judge Jones, it will be a part of the record. Thank you. My acceptance of your invitation 
to offer testimony is prompted by my conscience and is driven by a profound obligation to introduce into the record an historical perspective and in doing so I join with my colleague John Lewis whose life is a personification of courage and I wish to add to his description of the struggle for civil remedies and civil rights remedies. You are confronted here, I suggest, with a serious constitutional and moral responsibility. You are considering under the Constitution's advice and consent clause the fitness of a Supreme Court nominee who has in the past argued against the use of federal power to eradicate the vestiges of slavery and the badges of servitude. This record triggers serious questions and a vigorous inquiry into the whys. So much of the nominee's advocacy as a government lawyer and counselor was in the direction of against the implementation of civil rights remedies. There's been a lack of balance. While I appear in my own right, more importantly, I am invoking the voices of distinguished legal giants whose voices have been stilled by time. Dean Charles Hamilton Houston, Justice Thurgood Marshall, Judge William H. Hastie, Clarence Mitchell, James A. Nabritt, Judge Spotswood Robinson, Judge A. Leon Higginbotham, and many others who have my and I trust your deep and enduring respect. These individuals believed in the Constitution and they hoped that government would step up and protect the rights of the minorities and the persons who were victims of majoritarian excesses. They fashioned a strategy for using the law and the courts to attack racial segregation. They set the stage for the development of remedies to remove the stain of racial segregation that law and the courts imposed upon this land. You may ask why I invoke their names and speak in the voice of these towering legal giants and hold up the contributions they made to the advancement of civil rights jurisprudence. My reason is twofold. First, my professional and personal experiences qualify me to do so. Second, since he was nominated by the president, serious questions have been raised concerning Judge Roberts' views about the relevance and legality of remedies aimed at ending racial discrimination. Unfortunately, few Americans know or have focused on or are familiar with the history of the myriad ways the positive law and legislatures and reinforced and perpetuated racial discrimination in America. It is up to this committee, therefore, to assure that at the very least, the next Chief Justice of the United States understands that history and, most importantly, why remedial action was and continues to be necessary. Those courageous souls who laid the foundation for overturning decades of legally enforced racial segregation are calling out to you and I echo their voices to respect their labors and heed their lessons. One's fitness to be the Chief Justice transcends stellar economic and academic achievements and acknowledge professional competence. The nominee's views and his documented activist attempts to thwart the federal court's efforts to dismantle segregation schemes the court that the courts themselves permitted to be erected and sustained bring into play something much more fundamental than technical skills. The critical question before you is one of values, not competence. 
To understand why this is true, one need only, con only consider the most wretched decision the Supreme Court ever handed down in a case of human rights, Dred Scott versus Sanford. The author of that decision, Chief Justice Roger Taney, was undoubtedly highly qualified from a technical and professional standpoint. Yet faced with the fundamental question of whether a former slave had standing to sue to retain his newly acquired free status, Justice Taney wrote that black people were not persons within the meaning of the framers of the Constitution. Similarly, Henry Billings Brown, the author of the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson decision, had impressive professional credentials and academic as well. He was a graduate of both Harvard and Yale, and his prior judicial experience, which was on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, but he lacked the values that sensitized him to understand why the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments had to become a part of the Constitution. On the other hand, it was Justice John Marshall Harlan, the lone dissenter, a graduate of uh, a much smaller law school, a, a, the son of slave owners, who gave us the final word. And his word is his word that rings, has rung through the years. Uh, gentlemen and lady, I would conclude uh, with this observation. Abraham Lincoln stated in his famous speech in 1862 to the Congress, that fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. And it was George Santayana who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But given the, the nature of the exchanges that I've observed taking place this week in connection with the hearings, I would leave with you the words of Dr. Martin Luther King. He asked and answered these questions. Cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asked the question, is it politic? Vanity asked the question, is it popular? But conscience must ask the question, is it right? I leave you with those challenges. Thank you very much, uh, Judge Jones. Uh, our practice in the uh, committee is to have uh, five-minute rounds. Uh, in uh, setting the witness list, we had many, 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 many requests. And uh, we have honored as many as we could with some 30 witnesses uh, equally divided uh, between uh, Democrats and Republicans. Usually there is a tilt for the uh, majority, but uh, my decision was to divide them equally. Uh, we have a very uh, long road ahead of us. This is the second panel uh, on 6th, and uh, it is my hope that uh, uh, the questions will be abbreviated. We wanted to see you and hear you and have your statements and have your views and uh, look you in the eye uh, I, I personally will have just a, a few questions uh, which I will uh, want to ask. And let me start, uh, uh, Congressman Lewis, with you, well, with great appreciation for what you have done. Uh, the uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, uh, which we labored through in 1982, and I was there in Senator Dole's office, uh, and Senator Kennedy was deeply involved, and so was Senator Leahy, and uh, so many of us were to uh, get the uh, effects test instead of the intent test so that we have some realistic enforcement of civil rights. Senator Kennedy and I have already conferred. He came to me said, uh, let's renew the bill this year, the act this year if we can. It's the 40th year anniversary and we have a 
jammed agenda. We're going to try to do that, but it will be renewed. It doesn't expire until 07. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm very much uh, with you on the objectives and what we have to do. Uh, the memoranda, which are referred to, and there are quite a number of them, go back to Judge Roberts' days as a young lawyer, and he has testified uh, that he was representing a client, and uh, we had real battles with the Reagan administration. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I was involved in them, not, notwithstanding the fact that it was my party. Uh, but, uh, Congressman Lewis, I would like your views as to how you regarded what uh, uh, Judge Roberts said uh, in explaining his views at the time, or what the memoranda said, which uh, he said were not necessarily his views, and you have to evaluate that, uh, contrasted with uh, very close questioning by Senator Kennedy and others uh, where he did not raise objections or said he did not have an agenda to turn back the clock. Well, it's my uh, view, Senator, that, uh, Chairman, that the judge was on, on the wrong side of history. He was on the wrong side of the voting rights side, not just the letter, but also the spirit of the act. It, it is very hard and very difficult, almost impossible, uh, to, to prove uh, intent. You don't have, I think Vernon Jordan, the former head of the Urban League, said on one occasion that you won't have people in, in the American South, in the 11 southern states of the old Confederacy, from Virginia to Texas, putting up signs saying we're going to discriminate. We're going to keep blind people from getting elected. They're not going to do that. Um, I was young, too, a, a, a few years ago, 24, 25. But I tried to do the right thing. I got in the way. And I think George Roberts, as a young attorney in the administration of President Reagan and others, failed to go with his gut. Maybe. Did he go with his gut? Did he go with his heart? Or was this his views? You don't come back years later and say, oh, no. Oh, no. This was not my view. Sometimes you have to fight. Sometimes you have to get in the way. If you can't get in the way when you're 25 or 30, you're not going to get in the way when you're 50. Thank you, Congressman uh, Lewis. Uh, I just have a minute 40 left, and I want to give Governor Thornburg an opportunity to comment. Uh, based on your knowledge of uh, Judge Roberts, and you worked with him uh, at a time when he was young, uh, do you think that uh, those memoranda reflected his uh, own views as to uh, civil rights, uh, uh, or what do your insights and your knowledge of Judge Roberts tell you as to what we might expect of him as uh, Chief Justice if confirmed on these issues? Let me say uh, just three things in response to that, Senator. I have never seen any evidence of any hostility to civil rights on the part of Judge Roberts during my professional and per personal association with him, which goes back some 15 years. Secondly, uh, I think it is important, and uh, Justice Ginsburg was uh, quite uh, definite in this in her appearance at the time of her nomination, to separate out the views that are expressed as an advocate for a client and the views that might obtain if the individual were speaking for him or herself. And thirdly, I don't think any of us could stand, uh, perhaps uh, my friend John Lewis could, 
because of his distinguished career, but I don't think any of us could stand a complete and thorough rummaging through the views we expressed when we were 20 or 25 years old. I shudder to think that uh, some of the things that I had in my uh, craw at the time would stand the, the, the test today. But most importantly, I think, uh, is, is my conclusion that uh, on the basis of my personal knowledge of Judge Roberts that uh, there's no hostility there to civil rights. There's a veneration of the rule of law and uh, to the extent that the rule of law permits, it seems to me that uh, he would be a strong supporter of equal rights and equal treatment and equal justice for all under the law. Thank you, Governor Thornburg. Uh, uh, this is a very, very distinguished panel. We could hear a great deal more, but my time is up, and I have to set the lead on observing the time. Senator Leahy, do you care to question? Uh, just a more a comment, and I, of course, uh, Governor Thornburg is a friend of all of ours. We've worked with him during his time as the Attorney General, and when uh, you mentioned Justice Ginsburg, just so the record is clear, her appearance here is a lot different. She answered uh, questions from numerous senators on race discrimination and affirmative action. Several other senators, senators she answered questions on gender discrimination. Several other senators, she answered questions of reproductive rights. From several other senators, she answered questions on death penalty. And then First Amendment, freedom of speech, religion clause of the First Amendment, separation of powers, unenumerated rights, 14th Amendment, role of the court, deference to Congress, and then had three or four that she didn't answer. But she, had, she answered specifically for both Republicans and Democrats very intensive. I only mention it because there seems to be some view that when um, uh, Judge Roberts took, I think, too much to heart the recommendation made by some of the senators here not to answer questions, he took it too much to heart and did not answer those questions. I, when my friend John Lewis talks about times to get in the way, uh, he knows of which he speaks. He nearly died doing that, but he's doing it for the right cause, the cause of civil rights. And I think every African American and every white American and every brown American, everybody else, all Americans, have to thank you for what you did. I yield back my time. Thank you, uh, Senator Ray. Anybody on the other side of that I want to say? Could I have uh, one, one thought? Chairman, just real quickly, if I could, and I want to welcome the panel, and particularly my friend John Lewis. We worked a lot on the um, African American Museum of uh, History and Culture that's going to be here in Washington, D.C. Uh, sometime soon. We got that got that passed through. Judge uh, Jones, if I could just ask you a real brief question on this, because I, I I hear your concerns and I, I hear the thoughts, and 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 I respect the thought that you're putting uh, that you're putting forward here. Uh, Judge Roberts asked. You know, when people ask, I think uh, Senator Durbin asked him, you know, how do we know what kind of judge you're going to be on some of these issues? I, obviously, you've got a great head, but I want to look at your heart, and it's hard to see a man's heart. And, and Judge Roberts' response said, well, look at how I've ruled the cases thus far, which there are not a lot of, I think 52 cases thus far, but it does have one um, Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority um, where he ruled uh, against the D.C. government's uh, claim of sovereign immunity and in favor of a worker's disability discrimination lawsuit. It's kind of thin, but well, we only have 52 cases, and that one's there. And then 
he also talked about his dedication to rule of law uh, and that, that that's really what drew him into the law and if he is sufficiently dedicated to that rule of law given the basic the laws now that we have on books to to work to protect civil rights and a number of other issues shouldn't that give some solace that if if his heart is right on defending the rule of law given if we've gotten some of the laws better and right now that he he could um, could be quite a good judge for civil rights cases thank you for your question and I uh, I would respond this way I, I'll respond both as a former litigator, civil rights litigator, and as a judge. Uh, as a judge, we look at the record. The record that has been made here, the part of it that I have observed, shows uh, a, an early disposition to take positions contrary to civil rights enforcement. Um, the burden uh, that is now imposed upon him and imposed upon this committee is to be satisfied that uh, the uh, presumption or at least the inference that one can draw from from that prior record uh, has been overcome and that uh, that he is that he doesn't share uh, those views at this time that's a burden of judgment this committee has to make I would also point out that if I may just just be a little personal at the time I left the my job as as a uh, general counsel of NAACP, a position that I had uh, occupied, uh, which Thurgood Marshall also occupied, I had been involved in litigating major civil rights cases all across the country. I joined the court of, um, upon appointment by President Carter in 1979. At that time, we thought generally that certain civil rights principles were settled. We thought that the issue of school desegregation was settled in light of Justice, Chief Justice Berger's decision in Swan, in which he said that busing and transportation was an appropriate remedy when you had a finding of constitutional violations that rigged a school district. We thought the issue of affirmative action was settled with the Bakke case, with Justice Powell's plurality opinion, which he says you may take race into account. But we find that following that case, uh, the, the, uh, those cases which I thought were settled, I was then sitting as a judge on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and I was engaged in uh, dealing with the first wave of, of attacks against school desegregation and against affirmative action. The, the challenges uh, claiming uh, preferential treatment, claiming forced busing, all of these buzzwords were coming at the court, and we were then faced with the decision, uh, are these principles settled? And, and I now learned that in the boiler room of the Reagan administration stoking out and crafting a lot of the theories that were that were being uh, used in the course to attack these settled principles uh, was the nominee. Now that raises a question for me and, and for you of this committee to decide whether if one is a believer in the rule of law why one would not accept uh, Swan as settled law, would not accept Bakke as settled law, would not accept Weber as settled law, uh, the, the whole body of jurisprudence that had, that had been built up to, uh, to reaffirm the, the value of remedial uh, actions when it was clear that uh, we had this vast history of racial discrimination in this if country. If I could, before my time runs okay. out, uh, just quickly say I, I appreciate the thought. I, well, I you might think quickly, Senator Brownback, we have to move on. Okay, that I would know what Judge Roberts has ruled 
what he has done as a judge, and I would hope people could look at that in a fair light of what it is and in indicating his uh, judicial temperament and nature. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Senator Brownback. We're going to break for lunch at the conclusion of this panel. Senator Kennedy? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Um, I don't think any of us in the course of the time of questioning uh, Judge Roberts ever uh, suggested that in any way he had any uh, hostility uh, on uh, the issues of race. I really think the question was, does he get it? Does he get it? Just what uh, the good judge has pointed out, the, the march towards progress that we have seen over the recent years. Uh, so I'd ask uh, uh, Mr. Henderson and then uh, John Lewis, uh, what, how about this argument? Uh, well, he was just an attorney. He was just an attorney. He was speaking for an administration. He was just taking administration's uh, position. So we shouldn't be too harsh on this. Sure, the administration uh, was just wanted to the reauthorization uh, of the uh, intent test. He was just following uh, orders, uh, so to speak, on this. Uh, and so why should we uh, not assume that he, he gets it with regards to uh, the issues of uh, of this nation's great, great challenge, the, the, the poison of discrimination that's there since the first days uh, of it. And we've all seen, including in my own state of Massachusetts, the, the challenges that we, we have faced. Why can't, what, what's your response to that? Well, Senator, I certainly recognize uh, a legitimate argument that an individual representing a client often projects the views that best suit the client. But I remind you, sir, that um, Judge Roberts uh, never once distanced himself from positions uh, articulated in many of the memoranda at issue in a way that would uh, give comfort uh, to the notion that he, in fact, had not internalized these views uh, to reflect his own uh, policies. Uh, Judge Roberts has a vision of judicial restraint, and he's articulated it himself, uh, which is really a retreat from the role of the federal courts in protecting civil rights. And I guess, you know, from my view, this is really not an academic debate. It's very personal. I mean, I grew up right here in the nation's capital. I was 16 before formal segregation ended by law. I know what it's like uh, to be on the politically disfavored side uh, of the color line. And I know that the federal courts have played an important role in helping to ensure equal opportunity for all of American citizens, and we're not prepared to take that risk. I would simply say that even in today's society, Senator Brownback mentioned earlier, well, laws have changed, things have happened, they've improved. Certainly that is true. But in the words, uh, words of William Faulkner, you know, the past is never dead. Uh, in fact, it's not even past. And just to confirm that point, I have a pending complaint right now before the Department of Justice for a case of public accommodation discrimination from a hotel in New Orleans over the 4th of July weekend in an area where I thought change had been made in a lasting way that would not have permitted that to happen. I know firsthand what that stigma is about, and I just reject that analysis. Well, Senator, it is true that we did ask him, I asked him, about whether any of these positions that he had taken at that time whether he would reverse uh, any of these. And we didn't hear uh, a response from him that he might. Let me ask John Lewis uh, to comment on that, and then also in the, the comment. I'm, I've got a minute and a half, John, so you know this business. So I hope you'll respond uh, to the earlier question for Wayne. But I hope also, uh, uh, when uh, Judge Roberts was asked about the intent test and the effects test, 
And he was asked also by members of the panel, well, if we had actually had the intent test, do you think we would have made the progress that we would have made with the uh, uh, infects test? And he said, I'm not so sure we might not have made kind of progress on that. We know the uh, earth-shattering progress that has been made with the election of officials locally, state, and at the uh, federal level, and the progress that has been made with the effects test. I'm interested in someone uh, who knows the and believes that the Voting Rights Act is the key civil rights issue. What's your own uh, view on this uh, question? How could anyone view that if we had had the intent test, we'd be where we are today. Wouldn't we be a different land? Well, I, I tell you, Senator, as someone who worked in, in the American South for several years, directed an organization called the Voter Education Project for seven years, trying to get people registered, trying to get uh, people to lose that sense of fear. People, I tell you, we wouldn't be where we are today. The American South would be different. The country would be different if we had to rely on the intent test. I wouldn't be here as a member of Congress. And a lot of my colleagues in the House of Representatives, a lot of the elected officials all across the South, before the Voting Rights Act in 1965, there were less than 50 black elected officials in 11 southern states, from Virginia to Texas. Today, there are more than 9,000. We, we wouldn't have made it. There still will be people <laughs> trying to get elected, and they wouldn't be elected. I don't buy this argument that he was just doing his job. He was just following the rule. By this time, you had the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act in 1968. By this time, is there someone in the administration? They should have a mindset. I think this says something about George Roberts' mindset. He didn't stand up and argue against this attitude. He didn't speak out. He didn't send a memo saying something different. My time is up, but thank you. Thank, thank, thank you very much, uh, Senator Kennedy. Senator Durbin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the panel. Let me first thank my colleague, Senator Kennedy. I think that uh, during the course of this inquiry of Judge Roberts, he has been laser focused on civil rights and the Voting Rights Act, and I think it's done a great service uh, to the operation of the committee, and I hope that we all appreciate how much work went into it. But I do recall, Senator Kennedy, on the first day when you went into this, uh, I made notes how Judge Roberts said repeatedly, that was 23 years ago. I was a staff lawyer in the Justice Department. That was the position for the administration I worked for. It was my job to articulate administration policy. We heard that consistently whenever we brought up these memos. And so I thought to myself, well, in fairness, if we're going to allow him to use that uh, explanation, what does he feel today? What can he tell us today? I personally believe in redemption, in faith and politics. And I think, John Lewis, you have seen so many in the past who were on the wrong side of history on civil rights who realized it and conceded that and moved to a different position. During the course of this hearing, we asked Judge Roberts many questions. In fairness to him, one of the few direct questions he answered was when I asked him about Bob Jones University case. And he said, I disagreed with the position of the Reagan administration. I think I'm glad he said that. I wish he could have told us more. Then I tried in my last round of questioning to get down to a point of where would you draw the line as an advocate? Are there some things you would not bring your legal skills to? You have spoken with pride of Romer versus Evans. 
and the fact that you counseled gays and lesbians who were about to lose their rights in Colorado, and just a few hours ago I asked him sitting at the same table, could you have taken the other position to restrict the rights? And he said yes. And so it, it comes down to a fundamental question. I don't think I understand if there is a clear, bright line in his mind when it comes to this issue of freedom and when it comes to this issue of liberty. And that troubles me uh, because I think knowing that, I'd feel more confident that he could lead this court. But I'd like to ask you, John Lewis, on the issue of redemption, do you feel that even if he was totally wrong 23 years ago or 24 years ago in his memos, that people can change? Well, I, I think it's possible and conceivable, uh, Senator, that people can change. But when you believe and feel and know from your experience, or maybe from the law and from history that you've been wrong, you show some sign. And you're not afraid to talk about it. You're not afraid to go on the record. Jared Roberts has been afraid to show or demonstrate any signs that he's changed. I wonder what is part of his mindset. Well, I think that's the point, and maybe Wade Henderson made the same point, that when Senator Kennedy went directly to the Voting Rights Act, much like Bob Jones University, he could have made it clear that that position was just wrong and that history had proven it wrong. And yet, for two successive days, it, it came up short. Wade Henderson, you, you've made that point in what you had to say here, the critical questions, values, and just not competence here and what we're dealing with and Judge Jones said the same and and so I, I, I don't want to dwell on this any any longer other than tell you for me this is the threshold issue the issue of race is the threshold issue I have to be convinced in my mind that Judge Roberts comes to this critical job as the head of the third branch of our government with a clear understanding of what we must do in this country still to deal with the, the issues of race and justice for so many minorities in this country. Thank you all on this panel. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Durbin. Thank you very much. Mr. Uh, Mr. Chairman, with your permission, if I could just make one quick clarification. Go ahead. Uh, we've been talking, thank you very much. We've been talking about redemption, and I don't think that John Roberts needs to be redeemed in any sense whatsoever, but to the extent one claims that his position on the Voting Rights Act was somehow wrong prior to the effects test, let's take a look at the facts after the effects test was implemented, what did Judge Roberts do? He argued Chisholm versus Romer. He argued the Houston Lawyers Association. He argued for an extension of the effects test to state judicial uh, elections. If he redeemed himself at all, he clearly did it, did it right there. So we have facts here. Uh, this is not speculative. In terms of looking at his heart, if it's conflated with what he's done on the court, and I don't know that you can necessarily discern that, we have absolute evidence of what he felt about enforcement of the effects test. Thank you, Commissioner. Senator Sessions wants a minute recognition before we break for a very abbreviated lunch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I would just, just like to add, I've, I've been listening to some of this uh, as I could. I would just like to add that we've heard explanations from Judge Roberts on each one of the memorandums he wrote, each one of the uh, situations that he was called to express an opinion on, such as the effects test. Uh, his ruling was absolutely consistent with the Supreme Court ruling of the United States at that time. So all I would say is I think it's unfair to suggest that he has a record <coughs> uh, 
that uh, indicates that he was somehow wrong on civil rights at that time. Yes, he opposed quotas. Uh, yes, uh, he uh, supported the uh, extension of the Voting Rights Act completely, but he did not uh, favor its alteration to overrule the Supreme Court's opinion. So I would just, for the record, like to say um, I believe his record does show affirmatively that he is committed to equal justice under law, which is what he's called upon to do. Thank, Thank you, you very much, uh, Senator Sessions. Senator Kennedy, Thank you have you. Uh, consent, uh, consent that uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Educational Fund prepared some important testimony to be made a part of it. Without objection, it will be made a part of the record. Thank you all very much. We have so many witnesses, we're going to have an abbreviated, not a lunch hour, but a lunch half hour. We'll resume at 2 o'clock. Audible thanks you for listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Please visit audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including Fresh Air, Car Talk, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review, and Charlie Rose. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.